Hello, everyone. This is Ryan St. George with the Talking Fist Podcast. Uh, right now, we have an impromptu uh, conversation starting here with my friend Viet Le. Am I pronouncing that correctly? It's Lay. Lay. I'm sorry. I've yeah. heard someone else say Le. That's why I said that. <laughs> it's fine. Yeah. Uh, we, you know, I mean, we're Facebook friends, but we don't really know each other very well. So this is very much a candid you know off the cuff conversation we're going to get to know each other and we're going to have the pleasure of hearing uh viet Le's, uh you know adventure in martial arts so mr lay thank you so much for being here with us i really appreciate it for all seven of my listeners i'm sure they all appreciate it um so please uh just kind of give us a background on uh who you are and then uh where you came from and what got you into martial arts Sure. Uh, so uh, it's a pleasure to be on this podcast. Yeah, my name is Viet Le. Um, I am originally from Southern California. Um, and, you know, I guess the reason I got into martial arts mainly was I, I think I started first because of familiar pressures. Um, so I'm of Vietnamese descent and my family came here as boat people. Um, and so at, at the end of the war, Vietnam War, 1975, a lot of Vietnamese people fled from South Vietnam and came, made their way to the United States. My dad was uh, in the former, uh, in the military, in the former South Vietnam. Uh, and so he had, you know, some ideas about what he wanted his kid to be like. He wanted me to have some basic self-defense skills. And so that's why he put me in a martial arts. So I started at the age of seven. Um, doing Northern Shaolin and praying mantis at my elementary school. And that was sort of the start of my martial arts journey. So that's, that's fantastic. And, you know, big respect to your father, father, he was fighting against the communists of North Vietnam, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting. Cause like my family actually originally came from Northern Vietnam and they left, uh, Northern Vietnam in 1954 when the country was partitioned. Um, and came to the South, and in 1975, they came to the United States, so we had to remake our lives again. But you know, when I speak Vietnamese, I still preserve a Northern accent, and I, I always get questioned as to where I'm from, not only by American people, but also by Vietnamese people, because I don't really share the same Southern accent that most Vietnamese people in the United States speak with, right? So a lot of you know feeling lost and not belonging kind of stems from that sort of upbringing, right? Right. My right. family being like uprooted and then me similarly feeling uprooted. Uh, that's all uh, been part of my life story. Mm, that's very interesting. It must have been hard to leave the communist occupied area to make it to the South than to make it to the United States. That's pretty incredible. I don't think a lot yeah. of people understand that. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, as a community, I think we've suffered uh, quite a bit of trauma that, you know, I think that generation just didn't want to talk about. And now that I'm older and my Vietnamese is a lot better, um, you sort of understand more about the sacrifices that your parents and your grandparents made, right? So mm-hmm. uh, my dad was an orphan uh, coming from that, uh, that area of Vietnam. Uh, my mom was three years old when she uh, left from uh, Hanoi to the south. Um, and they, you know, made their lives in South Vietnam, which is like remaking their lives again, right? And actually, 1975, April 30, was, which is when the communists came into Saigon, my mom was a third-year medical student at the University of Saigon. Wow. She was in the wards, and her preceptor was like, there's no hospital, there's no medical school, there's no country, go home. 
And my mom came back uh, to the house and uh, one of my mom's sisters was saying, yeah, there's a lot of people leaving out of Saigon. They're all in the harbor right now. So my grandparents, uh, my mom's uh, nine brothers and sisters, they all decided to leave their home in Saigon, go out to the harbor, and they just got an American ship. And, uh, you know, a couple of days later, they, they found themselves at sea and then eventually the United States. And... Um, yeah, so that is incredible. Incredible back backdrop. Yeah, you know, I uh, it's really nice meeting a lot of Vietnamese people here in uh, Texas. I'm originally from Southern California as well, and uh, yeah, we share that in common. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and uh, uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think it's changing now. But the Asian demographic here seem to be more Vietnamese than Chinese, as. You know, it's as in California, I feel like there's much more Chinese and Vietnamese, or maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> you know, um, I, I think with Southern California in particular, we have uh, different pockets, and even like the waves of Chinese people who came to California, um, they've been changing, right? So the original, you know, Chinese immigrants to California were certainly, you know, more Cantonese and uh, more people from the Toisan area of, right. of Guangdong province, right? Right. And unfortunately, that dialect is is almost died out in in a lot of the Chinatowns across the United States. And then you know we started uh, you know getting people after after the Vietnam War. A lot of Chinese Vietnamese started to come over, um, and then Hong Kong people, right? And especially during 1997 with the takeover. Um, of Hong Kong, and then you have uh, Taiwanese and mainlanders coming in the 80s and 90s. So, you know, waves of, of different uh, Chinese immigration to California. You know, I, I feel pretty comfortable in, in LA Chinatown speaking Vietnamese from one side of this one side of town to the other because pretty much everyone speaks Mandarin Cantonese and Vietnamese. Right. So I feel pretty comfortable. But if I go to Monterey Park um, or El Monte, or other parts of San Gabriel Valley, you're pretty much uh, stuck with speaking Mandarin, right? So it just depends on the area. Right? Yeah. Um, when I before I moved to Texas, I felt like my Mandarin is much more useful there than it is here. Um, also, I feel like a, a Chinese. I can't speak, you know, about Vietnamese, but I feel like they more of them speak English here in Texas. Uh, even much oh, yeah. older people do. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I love the Asian community here. It's uh, wonderful people. You know, my wife's Asian, you know, and they, we always go to Chinatown or Vietnam town and, uh, you know, really good food. I love long coffee. Have you ever been there? I haven't been. Oh, it's, it's excellent. Um, but anyways, you know, en- enough of of that. You know, I don't want to get too personal, but I, I do appreciate you sharing all that. But again, I just want to say it's incredible what your father did and what he gave up. You know, the risk too. I don't think a lot of people here understand. You know, they they really don't. Um, I think maybe some of the Chinese that fled uh, communist China to Taiwan um, or to Hong Kong probably understand. But outside of that, I don't think a lot of people do. And- yeah, this this narrative just isn't. I mean, part of it is because, uh, you know, with subsequent generations of American, Asian Americans, we we're trying to be more American. Right. Right. Uh, and at the same time, you know, that generation uh, didn't really want to talk about it. Right. Mm-hmm. They lived through it and it was traumatic for them. And they just want to put that aside and move on. Right. 
I had to do a lot of digging into my my dad's past, and I, I you know, to be frightfully honest, I didn't really learn everything until my father passed away about three years ago when I oh, put wow. his papers in order. So when my dad immigrated, uh, he kept everything from his birth certificate to his uh, um, high school grades, right, mm-hmm. to uh, you know papers where he was, you know, in the military, all of that from, from, from South Vietnam and, you know, all his, all his education degrees, like he was in law school for a little while, mm-hmm. uh, both in Vietnam and the United States. Um, and, you know, I didn't really get a great image of that until I put that together more. Right. Um, and it's, it's just sad that I, I didn't learn more while he was alive because uh, he didn't really want to talk about it. Right. Right. Uh, but I, you know, I certainly learned a lot once I put that all together. That's incredible. Kind of a family legacy, kind of. Mm -hmm. So, Northern Shaolin, and uh, which type of praying mantis, as odd as that sounds, to ask that uh, did you study? So my my first teacher, his name was uh, Sifu Clyde King the Third, and he was a student of a man named Chung Yaming. Chung Yaming was a Korean Chinese uh, teacher. Um, so his family came from Shandong province and they had immigrated to uh, Incheon, South Korea, which is still home to a sizable Chinatown, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Incheon is pretty close to Seoul. Um, and so, you know, now that I look back, I, I start to realize like how much, how much, I, how much that system had. Um, so he taught a mixture of his family style, um, which was had a Northern Shaolin base. Um, he had all because his family also moved to Taiwan, so he had also learned from another individual. His name was Fanjie Xiao, who was part of the Nanjing Guoshu Institute, um, and who also studied Hongqiao, right? Right. Um, and then not the southern Hungar, but northern northern Hongqiao, so along this style. And then in terms of praying mantis um, in Korea, uh, they preserved a very uh, distinct lineage of uh, so plum flower praying mantis um, and then when he went to Taiwan uh, as I was told he had some kind of family relations with Wei Xiaotang so Wei Xiaotang was uh, the person who preserved eight step praying mantis and so his mantis that he taught was a mixture of plum flower eight step so Meihua and Ba Wutang Wow, that so is that fantastic. My, that, was my, that was my foundation. Well, very, very much a personal kind of eclectic style, you would say, right? It was. And, um, you know, I think what he did, which was, you know, part of his genius, was that he made the material agree with each other. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, looking at the history of Chinese martial arts, um, you know, back then there was only Kala, there was only Mantis, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't until after, you know, whether in Taiwan where they had to register with the government, uh, different style names and different school names. So all of a sudden you had schools like Changchunhua from Gaolashan, uh, Long Fist Mantis, right? Mm. Or you had Bawutala from, from Wei Xiaotang, right? Back then people, when they were practicing, they, they freely exchanged ideas in the village. And all of a sudden when, when you know, come in modern time, just to establish school and register with the government, you had to register a name. And that's how some of these styles were actually officially created, right? Not mm-hmm. saying all of them, but some of them. Right. Well, a similar thing uh, happened in Japan with, I mean, Okinawa with a lot of the karate styles. They just kind of made up names on the fly. So, sure. And so it's interesting with the use of, you know, 
like short like shore and Rue, right mm-hmm. in okinawa some of them use the small character for show right mm-hmm. uh, like shaoling right though but instead of using young they'll use small right some people will use show like shaoling the same one right right and it's just it, it really it's it's a homophone they all sound the same but they're right. using different chinese characters to to distinguish one another and I, I think that in its infancy people really didn't care right um, so um what what master chung did and I, I i have to respect this is that um he kind of made even these you know he may have learned mantis from different teachers and what have you but he made it he put it all together and he would put elements um within the forms that would make him agree with one another Right. Right. Uh, so when you were learning it, you really I, I didn't know whether one form was plum flower, one form was eight stuff. I could tell I could tell between Northern Shaolin and Mantis, obviously, but I couldn't distinguish any further than that. And it wasn't mm-hmm. until after, you know, doing this really long about Kung Fu journey that I've done that I was so able to see that he took from all these different sources and put it together. Right. So what originally resembles from the outside as being an eclectic mixture when you're practicing it you really have no clue it, it, right. it, it is just northern style come through mm-hmm. right so yeah it was, it was a great foundation for me i think it's a much better way to teach to be honest when you kind of like start breaking things apart like okay this is this this is from that and then and, and you feel like you have to change so much to adjust to this different thing i don't think it produces a, a skilled martial artist do you get what i'm saying for sure. Yeah. Um, I, I'm going to echo some of uh, what I heard from your interview with Byron Jacobs is that, you know, you're learning a skill set, right? Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people who kind of see my persona on Instagram or, or Facebook have this impression that like, yeah, I know a lot of different forms and I'm a forms collector, what have you. <clears throat> but I, what I'm trying to do is I, I'm trying to understand in my own personal way, you know, how are things constructed? What What is it that puts makes these things share a common ancestor what are the things that they have in common right mm-hmm. uh, i just put that as a record uh really for me so i don't forget things in, in case i want to reference in case others want to reference that's all right mm-hmm. um but we, i think that anybody kind of seeing those videos or like me reviewing them myself i start to realize like look you know northern martial arts all share the same same mother but they you have you know, certain styles that are sort of meat and potato styles, mm-hmm. right? You have your, like, just like when you go to college, you have your core classes, you have elective classes, right? Mm-hmm. And so you have those styles that have all those elements of chi da ha, right? You have kicking, you have hitting, you have wrestling, and you have uh, your joint manipulation. And then you have specialties, right? So if you like, you know, if you like a little bit more combinations, right? Um, and you like, um, you know, you like a little bit of a, the catching, you might prefer something like Mantis Mall, right? Mm-hmm. Or Eagle Claw, right? If you were more, if you were wanting to learn more about the long arm um, techniques, then something like Tombe or Piwa would be a better fit, right? Um, if you wanted to learn more about power generation, right? Something like Baji or Chai would be a better fit, right? Mm-hmm. But they all come from a long fist, like long fist DNA, right? mm-hmm. long fist is the mother. Right. Mm. Like in Southern martial arts, you have, uh, you know, I think Hungar, um, I won't say it's the oldest art, but it definitely has these elements that make it a mother art. Right. right. And then from there, if you like the short arm, you you might want to do something like Wing Chun or Hakka, Hakka Kyun. So like Long Yin or mm. Bakme. Right. Mm-hmm. If you like the long arms, things like Lama or Chole Foot would be a better fit. 
But I always stress to people when they go into specialty yards without having a core, you're never going to get it. That's my personal belief. Right. right? Um, I, I, and I, I try to anybody that's asking about Kung Fu and how should they start training? I, I do think there's benefit to going through a curriculum. Right. So progression. Right. Not just mm-hmm. practicing one thing and, and, and making it stale. Right. Well, like Byron was talking about uh, Bagua, that it's not something you should just start with because it's almost like uh, don't hide trends. Students already had a base in different arts. Right. Right. They already had a foundation. They're, they already had, a, right. I guess, a curriculum, you know, right. Uh, right. they had the basics. And then he taught them, you know, very, you know, sophisticated kind of arcane way of movement and technique. But you, I, it. Like, I wouldn't say someone, I'm not an expert in this at all, but I could see why he would say, and a lot of people would say, you shouldn't start with something like Bagua. Would you kind of echo that sentiment? For sure. Um, you know, historically speaking, it's been said that Dong Hai Chuan just taught the, like, standing postures and then Lao San Zhang, right? Mm-hmm. So the old three palms. So Dan Huan Zhang, Shuan Huan Zhang, and Shuan Zhang. So the single palm change, double palm change, and smooth palm change. And then afterwards, those other five palm changes were personalized, depending on the person, depending on their background. Um, there are certain higher level arts, right? Um, you go into an art deeply enough, you can see those levels, but there are other arts that presume that you have some kind of foundation already. I would right. say Bala is one of those arts, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you can see you can see in, 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 in its structure what, what it's demanding of you. Right. I'm a neurologist by background, so I like to talk about how these kind of play with the mind. Right. Mm-hmm. Bhagavad not only demands that you learn movements statically, you start moving from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Right. So, I, I mean, some lineages might pre- preserve some John Zhuang or standing meditation methods, but they're holding the palms and walking the circle. Whatever they're doing on the left side, they're doing on the right side. Whatever they're doing in straight lines, they do in circles. Right? Mm-hmm. A lot of arts don't have that element. Right? You learn Tai Chi Chuan, you learn the long form, you learn on one side. A very few people have endeavored to learn it on the other side. Mm-hmm. Right? And you know, I, I I tend to think it in terms of research. If you were if you were to train a population of people, you had people t- training Tai Chi Chuan and and Bao Zhang, just and you gave it three months. Um, you could see how Bawajan would actually be much more demanding because of that aspect, right? right. Between learning a form and learning how to improvise, mm-hmm. Bawajan almost demands that you improvise from very early on, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, not so much. Right. So backtracking a bit, so sure. Northern Shaolin, Mantis, that specialty Mantis, uh, that was, were both of these under the same instructor? Yeah, so uh, under Sifu Clyde. Uh, so I, I started when I was seven, and I studied with him for maybe two, three years. And then my dad was frustrated because he really didn't understand Chinese martial arts. And he was like, you know, I did Taekwondo in the military. You know, you're going to do Taekwondo. Uh, so he pulled me out, and uh, I did Taekwondo for uh, three, four years. Mm-hmm. Uh, Which taekwondo, taekwondo was it? Was it the more traditional ITF hard style? Well, w- or the... w- WTF. WTF. Okay. <laughs> Well, I mean, I, I'm not saying that's bad, you know what I mean? But there is a no. difference. Sure, sure. Yeah. And, and just in the United States, we don't have a lot of ITF, right? My dad was trained in ITF. Uh, Which but, is a, actually uh, a really strong style of Taekwondo, to right, be honest. That's right. really good art. A lot of people don't know that. They hear Taekwondo and they disregard it as just uh, Olympic style, which is not the whole story, you know. Sure, so. sure. 
and and you know, people people I don't know if in the United States people are aware about but uh, about this but when Choi Hong he founded his art right one of the first testing grounds for Taekwondo was the Vietnam War yeah so the Koreans sent whole regiments to to Vietnam and scared the crap out of us well that makes sense um, that your dad learned Taekwondo because I just did you ever read the book of Killing Art. Yes, I have. Yeah, so that, I mean, historically it all lines up. You know, it makes yeah. sense they would learn that really dangerous hard style of ITF type Taekwondo. You know what right. I mean? Or maybe it was still called Tongsudo at the time. I'm not sure, but I mean, uh, it's, it's the same Choi thing. Hong he, Choi Hong he, I mean, Hong Ki may have written his book about Muda Kwan and Tongsudo, mm-hmm. uh, but in Vietnam in particular, Choi Hong he and one of his top instructors, Nam Tae Hee, um, brought Taekwondo to Vietnam, okay, um, and they taught it specifically to the, uh, to the South Vietnamese military. Mm-hmm. At that time, the South Vietnamese military, um, you had some choices. You could either learn Judo, you could learn Vo Nam, which was being billed as kind of a national art. You're, you're not, you're not Vietnamese. You're not a Vietnamese patriot unless you know Vo Nam. So that was their whole pull, or you learn Taekwondo, right? Mm-hmm. But I think Taekwondo was a lot. I think commanded a lot more of a following because number one, um, Vietnamese are always obsessed with the foreign or the otherness, right? Mm-hmm. And the Koreans were disciplined; they were scaring the crap out of us, right? They went right. into uh, they were they were you know they were willing to put up with anyone. They were hard well, as hell. They just had a um, communist civil they, war right before you guys. Right, did. right, right. So they, yeah. they, they they were they were they were battle hardened, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they didn't have time for any scissor kicks or any of those fancy movements. Um, so, you know, they, they just brought with them a different kind of attitude. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, uh, my dad got, my dad had done Taekwondo then, and he had wanted me to do that, even though it was, uh, you know, WTF. Um, and I got a black, I got a black belt second degree way too early in my life. I think I was like maybe, maybe 10, 11. I still have my little official ID card from South Korea. Um, and it gave me a lot of confidence, uh, but it was a false sense of confidence, mm-hmm. right? So uh, once I was uh, 16, I got my driver's license and I went back to my my Kung Fu teacher and I trained at the main school. But I have to be honest, I had a little bit of ego then. Um, I realized that, you know, Taekwondo had given me, again, that false sense of confidence. Every time I was sparring, you know, I'd, I'd spar Taekwondo style. Right. And that meant a lot of kicking. I, I'd break people's gloves and I had to sit out in class. Um, and, you know, I just wasn't in the right mindset to learn. My, my, my cup was already full at that time. I thought I already right. figured it out. And I had a very humbling experience uh, one class because I decided to stay for the black belt class. And um, as if I knew something. And there was a Mexican guy that was there and, um, you know, I, I agreed to spar with him and he, he, he kicked my ass and he said to me in perfect Vietnamese, you need to calm down. And I replied in Spanish, you know, I'm going to learn how to, right. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, I, the reason why I remember that story is just, it just shows you like in California, you know, we have all these different communities mm-hmm. and people coming to California, sometimes things like we're, we're separate, but equal, right. But we, we do have a lot of crossover. I don't know how this guy learned Vietnamese or how much he knew of Vietnamese, but it was very impressive to me that he could speak in my language. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in some, I couldn't help but learn Spanish because I grew up there. Right. So, um, and once he, he told me that, you know, I, I, I found a way to calm down and I tried to take in as much as I could before I went to college. Mm-hmm. That is that is fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Just the whole Taekwondo uh, side uh, sidebar is really interesting too, because 
WTF does have the same tools ITF has. They just use the tools very differently. You know what I mean? Um, obviously, when you see them spar, does that make sense? It's spar. It's a sport. It's a sport. Yeah. And even even World Taekwondo Federation, if you look in the seventies, um, versus Total, how they totally different, out, right? Back yeah, back then there weren't these like you know these little snappy kicks and just looking for points, right? Um, and I, there's been some really good YouTube examples uh, of people kind of introducing that style. Just on the heavy bat, you could see how you know these kids used to carry a lot mm-hmm. of weight because you know these guys came from either an ITF Taekwondo background or traditional. Korean Kwan backgrounds, you know, Taekwondo was the basically founded on the uh, combination of different Kwans or local schools, yeah. right? So they all had traditional backgrounds, but once it became a sport and you had gear and you had rules, they had to people people played to win it, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I think it's so, very similar to kind of what what Byron was talking about, how you know with Bushu. In the early days of Wushu, everybody had a traditional background. And now, you know, flash forward, you know, many, many years after, decades later, you know, a lot of these people who are judging don't have any traditional backgrounds. Right. They've, been, they've had a Wushu background. So in terms of their criteria, um, I agree with, with Byron entirely. He, he knows this way more than I do. Um, that, you know, they don't really have, they're judging things based on Nandu, like just, you know, gymnastics and acrobatic techniques. Right. right? So, yeah. That's what happened. Mm-hmm. It, it's interesting. I, you know, train in uh, Taekwondo as well. And uh, it's, it is WT. However, I do do Shotokan Karate and, and I box as well. So I, I'm not, it, it, it's, it's different for me. Does that make sense? Because I enjoy the flexibility. Yeah. I like to kick, you know what I mean? It, it's, yeah. I, I view more of as like a, a complimentary thing, not like a core art. Sure. Um, sure. And I was trying to talk to them because I have, uh, you know, I've been doing Shotokan for many years. And I was showing them like, oh yeah, you know, Taekwondo comes from Shotokan Karate, and they looked at me, and they're all all the instructors are from Korea, like really nice, oh. wonderful people, and they looked at me like I was lying to them. Oh, and gosh. they're like, oh well, you have your version of history, we got our version. Not everyone agrees. I'm like, what? Like this, this is like is, this has been this has been explored uh, even in South Korea, right? And, mm-hmm. and anybody who is you know drinking from the sauce, right, and, and thinks that Taekwondo has no outside influence, right? A lot of people point, like if you read like the old, you know, 1975 textbook, um, it points out to murals with Buddhist uh, figure, guardian figures. Or Taekyeon, which is ta- nothing like Taekwondo Taekyeon at all. Is nothing, Taekyeon is nothing like, like the modern Taekwondo the way that it is, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Yong he, you know, took the name, right? Mm-hmm. Which um, was smart politically. Yeah, for sure. I mean, look at what, look at what Korea was able to do with Taekwondo. Yeah. Japan tried to do that with karate. And honestly, after the Olympics, I, I, I don't think it's going to be another Olympic event. I, I'm not really sure about that. I'm pretty sure. China still hasn't been able to make Wushu an Olympic event. Right? right. So, you know, they were able to unify and do everything they could in a very short amount of time. Right. Uh, which other arts haven't been able to do. So well, Taekwondo uh, is karate, though. It, it, it literally is. It just, basically is. It is it Korean karate. Is. You can literally yeah. tell in the forms and all the basics are essentially yeah. almost the same, you know? Yeah. And again, why would you have basically the same art? I mean, I prefer karate. I love Shotokan karate. It's my core art. I prefer it. If I could only do one thing, it would be that, you know? Mm-hmm. But, I mean, again, I can understand why would you have Shotokan when you already have Taekwondo you know, so. I don't. I don't know why. I don't know why in this day and age we we can't be more transparent about where our arts come from. Right? 
right? right. I mean, let, let's put aside like the whole nationalism thing and just be you know, objective and, and use historical evidence as best as possible, mm-hmm. right? You know, I, 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 I want to give, you know, props to what, again, what Taekwondo was able to do for South Korea, you know, mm-hmm. and, and the Olympic stage. But at the same time, let's acknowledge that, you know, it has its roots mainly in Shodokan Karate, right? Yeah. And then maybe roots in other types of Karate that may have been practiced by other Korean practitioners when they were part of the Japanese Imperial Empire. Right. right. I think that that's an honest assessment, right? We know yeah. that, you know, yeah. one of the, one of the, you know, with Kyokushin Karate, the founder was Korean. Right? Yeah. We know that he, his teacher, his Gojuru teacher was Korean, right? Mm-hmm. He was a student at Chojin Miyagi. So, so Nechu, we know that uh, Kankin Toyama had some Korean students. Right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I don't, I don't think in this day and age, right, we, we should be ashamed about acknowledging those achievements, right, um, and how that formed the backdrop of Taekwondo. Right. I mean, if anything, and Koreans took karate way further than the Japanese ever did when you think about right. it. Right. And that's why I, I, you know, to say like, you know, Taekwondo is just another, it's, it's another kind of karate. I think that with the skill set and its distinct look, you know, I, I'd like to, I, I can classify it as being something else. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, you know, it has, it has karate roots, but they, they, you know, evolved in a different way. Like mm-hmm. the same thing like with American Kempo. Like, would I call it karate? Not really. Not the way that it is now, right? Right. Um, it, it's evolved in a different way. Ed Parker took it a different way. Larry Tatum mm-hmm. took it a different way. It, it should be distinguished, right? right? But you should acknowledge where it came from. Yeah, you definitely. Acknowledge those, those influences in this day. That's yeah. all I'm saying. And a lot of those early American karate styles actually come, come from Tongsudo or Amer- or Taekwondo yeah. karate. A lot of it comes, most of it comes from Korean karate, if I'm not mistaken. Right. Yeah, right. so. Uh, I, I remember I read a story how when Masoyama was visiting New York and he heard people in karate gis and counting in Korean, not in Japanese, how it moved him a lot. Right. Mm-hmm. It was it was it was a sight for him because you imagine when you know he was growing up and Korea was part of Japan. Um, he basically had to push down his Koreanness and become Japanese and, yep. and portray his system in a Japanese light. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and here was an art in its infancy gaining worldwide popularity and able to co- keep its Korean Korean face. Right. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I, I, I'm, you know, I, I just wish there was a little bit more transparency about, you know, where, where our arts come from. Well, this transparency, if you look at the 70s and back to the transparency was there, they basically called it Korean karate or right. even if I had to work Taekwondo or Tong Sido, it's they still would put like underneath it karate or Korean karate. Sure. So sure. it's almost like it's everyone scary. just suddenly forgot, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then it became my teacher's son, right? Yeah. My teacher's son, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you know, in some areas, like, because I've, I've had to travel because of medical school and everything. In some areas of the Midwest, they preserve that. They don't really call themselves Tang Sudo first. They'll call themselves Korean Karate first, mm. right? and then they'll write Tang Sudo after. So that's actually the most honest way. Right? Yeah. Actually, you know what's interesting? Here in Texas, I was surprised there's quite a bit of ITF here. But I think because Jun Ri originally came to Texas. Mm-hmm. And brought Korean karate here before it was even called Taekwondo, you know, so before the, you know, political name change. But yeah. here in Texas, I, do you know that there in Houston, there's a lot of uh, old school Tongsudo or Korean karate ITF type stuff of, here. I knew of Junri's uh, legacy. Um, so I, I, I know that some of the ITF forms are still being practiced, uh, especially in Texas. I know there's some other groups as well uh, mm. that practice like 
ITF Taekwondo, but they just don't call it ITF. They call it by some other names. Right. But once you you see the names of their hyung, um, or they call it tol in, in Korean, uh, you can see because they name their forms after their Korean heroes, you can tell like this has some kind of link to ITF. It's just a right. political link. Yep. Right. Yeah, here we are going off on Taekwondo. Who would have thought <laughs> when this sure. topic supposed to be Chinese martial arts? My apologies. Sure. Well, no problem, no problem. But we but going back to that, so so like you know, I, I'm in college, and you know, I'm I'm a science major, like most Asian Americans are, because uh, my parents told me to be, and uh, my science GPA was was in the gutter because uh, I was playing too hard, um, so I needed a way to increase my GPA, and I took a Tai Chi class through the Department of World Arts and Culture at UCLA. And that's where I met my Shurfu, Jason So. Mm-hmm. Uh, my Shurfu, um, he was originally from Taiwan. Um, he had learned, um, when he was young, he had learned uh, a style of lampus called Plum Flower Lampus. Oh, wow. Uh, and then he learned Sai Jia with Changgongsheng. And then when he went to, this is, this is, I'm trying to get the details straight. So when he went to, I think high school or college, he started Xingyi and Bagua, and that's when he met Master Su. So Master Su, his other name was uh, Su Yujang. Um, he was teaching praying mantis at a lot of these local colleges in Taiwan. Um, so my teacher was studying with him. And then uh, Master Su said, hey, you should go meet uh, Master Lu, uh, Liu Yunqiao. So my master went with him um, through Master Su's introduction and continued his training uh, with Aji and Pigua and Bagua and all the other styles that are uh, available to the Wutan organization. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time when I met him at UCLA, he was just teaching the Yang style long form. He wasn't teaching a short form. Um, he only, and he only did that, he only did it that first, I think he only did that for two years when he started to realize like college kids just don't have the attention span for it. Um, so I, I took the class for a year. He had split the long form into three parts and I learned it for a year. And then I did it again to boost my GPA. And then my Shurfu was like, Hey, would you like to come out to, uh, you know, my classes in Monterey park? And I had a choice between, uh, Bazi Pigua or Bawaja, right. And, um, you know, I had done a lot of forms before that, like Northern Shaolin and stuff. And I wanted to understand power generation at that time. So uh, the Baji Pigua group seemed to appeal to me more. So I, I decided to join that. Oh, fascinating. Uh, yeah. I um, also went through like a, like a nationalistic stint and I only wanted to learn Vietnamese martial arts. So I, I went back to my community and I, I wrote a letter to a, a Vietnamese martial art teacher and he invited me to one of his testing events. So I went to that and uh, he didn't, I made a mistake. I, uh, cause I found out that one of my high school friends was actually studying at the same school. And during their testing uh, event, me and him were trading some techniques and that was a big no-no apparently. You don't, dem- you don't do another Kung Fu style in someone else's house, but I didn't know, right? right. Um, so he, the teacher didn't tell me, but the teacher told him that I, I was not welcome to study. Right. But, uh, he talked to one of his instructors and I started coming on weekends 
to learn traditional Vietnamese martial arts. So I was doing a lot of things in tandem, as I always do, right? Mm-hmm. So during the call, like during my college years, like I was learning Vietnamese martial arts as well as Baji. That is fascinating, and Pigua, I assume, right? Pigua came. Uh, we we in, in Wuhan, we we think of them as as being you know two parts of the same whole. Mm-hmm. Um, I. You don't start off with Pigua um, often, so you know. I, I honestly, I wasn't really interested in Pigua in the beginning. Like my chef would always say, and he continues to say, Pigua is medicine. You don't always like taking bitter medicine, but it's good for you, right? Um, so you know, I started with Baji first, I, and I got up to a certain level, and that's when he I, he introduced Pigua kind of late to me. Um, and the reason why was that uh, once I graduated college, I went off to Pennsylvania for a master's degree. And from then on, like I've, I've been away from home for another 12 years. And so I didn't really get the continuous teaching with my teacher. Mm-hmm. Every time I come home, he would, he would give me a little bit more, give me a little bit more. So I, right. I learned Pigua a little bit later than my Kung Fu brothers, but mm-hmm. I eventually did. Nice. I, I noticed a lot of schools will teach Baji first, even in, you know, in mainland China and then Pigua later. That's it's kind of like the, the common method, right? Um, I think if you, like Pigua is a separate system, right? right. Uh, with with uh, you know, depending on who you learn from, you know whether you learn uh, the Ma family Pigua, which uh, George Yu does, and, and that's a very famous system because of its history. Um, also, there's another Pigua system through Williams, uh, uh, another individual. Um, I would say what we do, and maybe what uh, some other Baji lineages in the mainland, I won't say that we preserve a Pigua system, right? We use elements of pigua that bolster our body, right? Some people may argue with me with that, but here, here's here's how I think of it, right? In in, in the Wutan system, when we do pigua, we do uh, you know some basics. We do uh, either four or eight lines, so single techniques that we repeat, and then we do two short forms, which are just linkages of those techniques that we learned. So it's a pretty small subsystem, right? When I say system, usually systems have like three to five forms at least, right? Here we have two forms and they're link, literally just liohan, so linkages, right? So I, I do feel this is just a personal opinion that like, I won't say like I'm a pigua practitioner, right? But we use pigua to sort of soften up, to give us a sense of that whipping motion, to give us a sense of the long arm, right? That helps with our body, right? Right. Um, and that, 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 you know, in other lineages, like I think in the Wu, Wu family in Mengchun, I think they do, I think they do maybe like only, they do one long form of pigua, right? Uh, I recently went up to see uh, Master Steven Yip, who does waist style body. Um, he does, I think, maybe, I think three forms of pigua, right? Hmm. That's not really the system. So, um, yeah, I, I think that that's kind of the body you approach to pigua. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Interesting. So Baji incidentally is, is not often practiced by itself. It, sometimes people will, you know, have the long fist background, right? And mm-hmm. they'll bring that in. Some people will mix it with Tongbei. Some people mix it with Pigua. Some people uh, like to, you know, do Taiji on the side, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Baji itself, because it's only really what's in common to all the lineages, Sha Baji and Da Baji, the, the small and the big Baji, right? Uh, so it, it, it often is practiced alongside other arts mm-hmm. i've noticed that and that's interesting so how long uh 
did you stay on the Baji path, the Pigua path? How long were you studying under that instructor, and how long did you do it for? Or are you still you know, kind I, of? I, I've been I've been doing Baji since that time, right? Um, so I discipled with my teacher um, my second year of medical school, so in 2011. And wow. I, you know, once I do, so after finishing my master's degree in Pennsylvania, um, and I did some other Kung Fu styles at that time, my Shifu, you know, he, he kind of looks at me and he's like, you know, how many forms do you know now? How many styles have you learned now? Um, and it's, it, it's frustrating and I, for him a little bit. I think at the same time, like he, 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 he knows that I'm on my journey, right? I, I, I never, uh, you know, I always recognize, you know, my shirt when I recognize that I'm, I tell other people that I'm his disciple, but I'm always wanting to know how other people do things. I, I don't want to, I don't want to feel like, Hey, I, I understand everything. I haven't seen everything. Right? right. So, um, when I, after finishing my, my master's degree, I went to medical school in Western Pennsylvania in a small town called Erie. And my Kung Fu uncle, uh, was living in, in Akron, Ohio, Tony Young. And so I continued to learn with him. Some aspects of Baji, but also, you know, more praying mantis. That's kind of what I focused in that area because that was something that was missing in my Shufu's curriculum, that emphasis. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, 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 I continue to learn from the Wutan system despite being away from home, kind of through that approach from my Kung Fu uncle and then trips home. Right. And I, I still I still continue to practice that system. So, you know, considering that, you know, I've, I've been my my. Shifu's disciple for at least like 13 years or something, a little over that, so maybe 15 or around there. Interesting. So, I mean, would you say Baji is your core art now? Baji is one of my core. I still I still think, you know, Northern Shaolin, and I know, it, 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 you know, when you say core, you usually presume that there's one art, right? Right. But northern shaolin or long fist uh is still an important element of my practice mm-hmm. right? so i still find value in practicing you know long fist basics and right before going into the baji right and i'll admit like let's say like a, if i had an hour and i wasn't thinking of if i wanted to fill up the time with some kung fu practice i would probably do northern shaolin baji for me is work right I have to want to do it. I have to put in the time. I know it's going to, it's, it's going to be a little painful, but I want it to. Right. Mm-hmm. So I, I would say that those are probably my core arts, uh, Northern Shaolin and, and, and Baji. And I think a lot of the other things that I do from watching my videos, uh, you can kind of see that kind of filter throughout, right. Whether I do a Southern style or whatever you, you can see like, you know, that's not, that's not Viet's forte, right? Uh, Viet, Viet's, Viet's emphasis is more those arts. And I, I think I, pra- I practice those arts the longest, and that's 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 what I keep it to be. Right? Mm-hmm. You know, I know in Chinese martial arts, it's, it's a bit more political than other arts. How do you kind of break that barrier to like, okay, show me this, like to meet someone and have them show you a movement or a form or an application from an art that's not your own? How do you kind of break that barrier? You know, I... I <sighs> Uh, it, this it's a little it's a little sensitive because some people are very guarded about showing things. Mm-hmm. Some people are very much one track minded and and think like you know I don't know where you're coming from I don't know your background and if you want to learn this because they, they 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 realize themselves that they a lot of teachers if they continue this this attitude of just 
uh, keeping it until they find the right person or you have to be coming to regular classes, um, they're not going to really get a lot of people. Right. And it's right. better. It's sometimes like, you know, they're desperate to share. It's hard for, you know, students to find the right teachers. Also hard for teachers to find the right student. I think that was in that interview. And I agree with that wholeheartedly. Mm-hmm. I usually start with an email. Right. Um, and I just I, I kind of pose a question and, and see if I can meet them because I do do quite a bit of traveling. And then I, I kind of, you know, post some videos kind of showing them my level, not to show up, but to just to show that I, I have practiced something, right? Um, and I just do in the air of transparency. I just kind of leave it all out there. Like, I, I, I'm wanting to understand this question. Could you help me out with it? And they say, no, that's fine, right? Um, I do, uh, well, I will ask multiple people from the same lineage until until I get an answer. And if all those of all those connections fail to pan out, so be it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I think I've been pretty successful because I, I really do spend a lot of time delving into different styles. Um, I, I think of myself as the Kung Fu FBI. <laughs> uh, this kind of started with when I was in competitions and I, you know, when you're competing with other people and you talk to different practitioners, they only know about their style, what their teacher told them. And I'd be able to tell them, hey, I know a little bit about your style and, you know, what you guys do. I'm really impressed by this, this and this. It's my job to make you feel good. Right. I value your your knowledge about your style. Right. And once they saw that, they'd share something. Right. So uh, my, my job is not to to make people feel that my my high, highest objective. Right. Is to make you feel good so I can learn something if you're willing to share. Right. right. Very well. So that's, said. What I yeah. that's, that's fantastic. I noticed it's uh, a race. It's a race against time. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know. A lot of these older teachers are, are passing away. Schools are closing. Um, it's hard to keep the rent and overhead. You know, back then, you know, you had to find somebody in a garage teaching, and then you then people started finding out that you can make money by teaching kung fu in the seventies and eighties with the kung fu craze. Mm-hmm. Now, with the advent of MMA, you know, a lot of these traditional kung fu schools are closing again, and you have to pass. You have to find find people through word of mouth, right? And I think some people understand that. Look, I'm, I'm just wanting some of your time. If you're willing to, if you're willing to share, that's all, right? Right. So. I think a lot of it is because of MMA. Like you could, and I'm not. I'm not saying this to disparage traditional martial arts, but you could train at an MMA school for in six months and pretty much, if you train hard, like you know, five days a week, you put in the work, you take it serious, you could kind of learn how to fight. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Whereas in traditional martial arts, like, you know, whether it's a, a traditional northern kung fu style or taekwondo, if you do it for six months, I, I don't think you'll have the same capability. Does that make sense? You know? Yeah. And then on top of that, you know, the a lot of kung uh, fu styles are more traditional than taekwondo where it's not as commercial. You know, like taekwondo, you can get a black belt when you're eight years old. I'm like, which is ridiculous, you know? Not all. I don't want to overgeneralize, but you know what I'm trying to say. Sure, sure, sure. And... I think a lot of these very traditional teachers, I, I respect them and I, I feel bad because a lot of them had to beg to learn, you know, mm-hmm. um, get down on their knees and beg, kowtow. Uh, during the Cultural Revolution, they had to, you know, you know, study in secret, study at night, study in the woods. You know what I mean? And and just to, just to keep this going. And now people are like, well, why why would I learn something? That's just so arcane, so difficult. 
you know, where there's no guarantee it's going to work in a fight. Uh, and I don't, I don't, I'm not saying that that's a factual thing, you know, but to your average person, that's how it looks where I know this works. There's evidence this is going to work in a fight in regards to MMA right. or like kickboxing or BJJ, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I almost feel like it's not fair to traditional uh, Chinese teachers, but like you said, they kind of have to go into desperation mode a bit, in my opinion, if they want to keep these things going, you know, if they sure. keep it so difficult, so, sure. uh, you know, secretive, like it, it's it, where, where will it be, you know, in 20, right. 30 years from now? Right. Right. Nobody's gonna, nobody's going to want to learn. And it's hard, you know, when you're doing a traditional, what, what keeps you going, right? What is, what, what is the measure of progress mm-hmm. for, for somebody, right? If you're, you know, within one Kung Fu family, maybe it's, you know, to better, to, to best your Kung Fu brother or something, right? But yeah, there, there really aren't a lot of opportunities. And we spent a lot, like the reason why Kung Fu died in America, right? Is not because just the fact that, uh, you know, it's, you know, it's been watered down for Americans or we don't have, we don't want to study. It's because of the secret nature of everything, mm-hmm. right? Not passing on the real stuff, right? And the um, guru culture too. A lot of Westerners, yeah. when they get like, I know this secret and they want to be a guru, they, you know what I mean? They get caught up in the whole cult thing and that just gets in the way as well, obviously. Right. And you don't, you don't want to get involved with that, right? Right. You just want to come there and learn. And, and I understand Guanxi, right? There is a relationship that forms over time. Absolutely. But you can't, for, you can't force it. You can't force it. Um, and to say that, you know, Chinese martial arts, that you, you can't fight with it, like, right uh, from the get-go. Um, you know, I, I think it really just depends on the teacher and their approach, right? And the, and, the, and also the, the students, what, what their intentions of mm-hmm. learning Chinese martial arts, right? Right. Uh, you know, in the United States, you get a lot of Kung Fu nerds, right? The people that are sticking with it are probably nerdy like myself, right? Mm-hmm. They, they have a day job. They, they want, they, they read some comic books, they read some stories, they watch some movies and they want to do it. That's, that's the start for a lot of people's Kung Fu biographies. Right. right? Um, and most of these people are already like adults, not really yeah. at a point in their the life where they're starting track, young the and they can track. use it in a fight, like in a, yeah. in a competition. You know what I mean? Yeah. If you're already yeah. starting in your twenties or thirties, you're not going to compete, you know? Yeah. So. yeah. And I, I mean, I have a day job, right? I, I can't go and see a patient with a black eye right. and, 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 a, and a bug leg or something like that. Right. Mm. Um, I do get my sparring in, right. Light sparring, you know, and, and I, I do enjoy that, but I also want to, you know, I want to, be able to uh, be able to live for another day enjoy those aspects of, of Chinese culture and, mm-hmm. and learn the forms learn the techniques have conversations about the history that kind of thing I, I think that's right. what Kung Fu is for a lot of people is that it offers all those aspects and you have to be willing to take that all in right right yeah. Just like, you know, when you're a physician, you, you can't just say, well, I want I, I want to treat patients. Well, I think being a physician means that you want to keep up with the research. Right. You're a people person and you like the science. Right. Mm-hmm. You, you can't you can't be if you're if you got a heart of gold, you should be a social. Worker, right. And if you if you just like the science then you should be a Ph.D., but it's mm-hmm. a doctor that can do all of those aspects. Right? The same right. thing with Chinese martial arts. I think, you know, to truly do Chinese martial arts, you have to be willing to 
you know, not only want to do the forms, right? You have to, you have to have some corpus of technique, right? right? But you have to be willing to understand the culture and the language, right? You have to understand a little bit about structure, mm-hmm. right? So it, it's, it's a, you know, my teacher will always say, you know, you, you imagine that you're, you have a chariot and it's being uh, led by three horses, right? So you have yenfa, which is performance, Right. You have dafa, which is uh, practical application. Right. And then you have gongfa, right, which is your skill building. Right. Mm-hmm. And that that makes for full rounded practice of gongfu. Right. Mm-hmm. So yenfa, da, dafa, gongfa. Right. Um, nowadays with kung fu, mainly yenfa. Right. Mainly form competition. Right. I'm guilty of that. It's the easiest way to show that you have kung fu. Right. Mm-hmm. The deeper aspects, it's hard to really express that into words like publicly. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, that, that's something that has been on my mind since my teacher has been espousing that theory for a couple of years is that, you know, you want to make sure that you're getting well-rounded practice, not just one thing, not just fighting, right? You got to right. have, you got to have it all. Agreed. Agreed. And again, to kind of go back to what you said earlier, like it, it, not all Chinese martial arts, you can say, well, you're not going to learn how to fight with it in the first six months. You know, <laughs> I, I agree with you. Like if you look at Xing Yi, it has all these striking techniques and how to, you know, how to block and hit at the same time and move and move forward and generate power, you know, but a lot of these Xing guys I talk to, they say, well, the first six months of the first year, I've even heard the first three years, all that I did was Santi Shu. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. That's know. amazing. Oh. So it's like, but, I, I, I personally don't, I, I, I will admit that I don't have the patience for doing that for that, that long, but I, I get it. I get it. I get it. Right. Um, but doing Santin Shu for six months or three years is not going to teach you how to fight. Like, you're going to have no, good no. structure, amazing base, right. you know, have a good understanding of how not to get right. pushed over. But do you get I, what I'm saying here? Sure. Yeah. It re- but it readies, it readies you for, for the other, the task at hand. Right. right? Is to absorb Xi right? right? And I have to say, you know, I, I uh, you know, I've done Filipino stick fighting. I've done... Um, I've done Khmer kickboxing. I've done Muay Thai. Uh, I'm doing a Jeet class right now. Kung Fu has has made me ready to do those arts a lot faster than other people coming off the street, right? For sure. Uh, so I, I still find it useful. I, I, I haven't given up on Kung Fu just yet, um, mm. but I, I do feel that Kung Fu people, we need a dose of, we need a reality check. We need, we need a dose of reality as well. Right? And it's good to, to be able to explore different ways of testing skills. Being a Kung Fu person means that you should be willing in any context to try. Right? Mm-hmm. I may lose to a BJJ guy on the ground, but I'm wanting to do it, to learn. Right. right. Uh, I may lose to uh, a kickboxer, a Muay Thai kickboxer, but I'm going to learn. Right. Right. Uh, this whole attitude, my technique is too deadly or, you know, we're wearing gloves. I, I do these techniques. That's all BS. Right. Well, obviously. And, you know, I mean, well, if right. you can't beat someone with rules, how are you going to beat them without rules? <laughs> without rules. I mean, and I think, that's even right, worse. I, yeah, well, it is worse. Yeah. And I think like, you know, Tim, you know, you know I, I, I know this, this podcast, you know, we're, you know, we're talking to one another, but I just want to like, just give props to, to, you know, some of these greats, like, you know, Byron and, and, and Tim Carmel for really just, you know, opening the doors to to a lot of traditional Chinese martial arts right. like myself. Like, you know, we need this reality check, mm-hmm. right? Doing BJJ is good for your Kung Fu. Doing yeah. uh, Muay Thai is good for your Kung Fu. Doing Judo is good for your Kung Fu. 
you know, we are not, we should not be in a vacuum. Just say, hey, mm-hmm. uh, I'm in a house that's burning right now. It's getting a little toasty, uh, but I'm just going to stay here for a little while. Right? That's that's the dumbest thing you would want to do. Right. right. <laughs> it's funny. I haven't done Sanda in years since I left China in 2017, but you know, I'm doing boxing now and it's helped. Like you said, it's made my karate so much stronger. You know, like, you know, my cardio is better. My hand speed is a lot better on the inside, you know, head movement and everything. All those things do exist in Shotokan, but they're not emphasized, obviously, you know. Skill set. Skill set. Yeah. You you learn a skill set. It's there, but you sometimes you need to have other arts to realize that aspect of your mother art. Yeah. Like sometimes it's just pad work, though. I totally, uh, you know, respect what you did. Yeah. Well, sometimes it's just pad work, right? Like, there's not enough yeah. pad work in a lot of Shotokan schools. Like, and you need that. Like, why would you train Muay Thai if you do Gung Fu? Well, pad work, hitting the tie pads, hitting the bag, you know? You need that, you know, because, yeah. uh, God, I can't remember his name. The Wizzy Knight Jikundo Club guy, uh, Tim Tackett, right? Um, mm-hmm. He said one time, he used to do Shini back in Taiwan before he did yeah. uh, Kune Do, and he's, and he, yeah. you know, he stopped he was doing an instructor. Yeah, he was legit. You know, as legit as you get at the time for Taiwanese lineage. I'm not disparaging Taiwanese lineage, but it was all we had. We didn't didn't have access to mainland, obviously, at the time. Sure. And uh, which, of course, you'd probably get better northern stuff coming out of the mainland, you know, but we didn't have it, you know, at the time. And uh, I don't, I don't, again, I don't want to upset anyone by saying that. I'm, I don't mean to overgeneralize. I'm probably going to get attacked for that. (laughs) But, um, and you know he was legit in Xing Yi. He even released books and whatnot. But he was saying like, man, I you know training JKD in boxing, you know, I generated you know a lot of power just you know in you know a fraction of the time just by doing pad work, you know. And it makes sense, you know. And and when you go to a lot of these schools, you go to a Muay Thai school or a boxing school, they're not going to want you to get in your, your traditional stance and just throw traditional strikes. You kind of have to respect what they do, but at least you get that pad work in, you know, right. that you would never get in a lot of traditional schools. You know, the cardio, the, you know, pushing through the, you know, do you get what I'm saying? Right. And I, I think those aspects probably were part of Chinese martial arts at one time mm-hmm. or another. And they, you know, it's, it's changed, right? Right. Um, if you were trained to fight in war, right? you would have to have some aspect of target practice, right? right? They're not practicing forms. We know from from the records that everything was basically techniques, and a lot of these forms are probably made from the Ming Dynasty onward, mm-hmm. right? A lot of so, line drills, I would assume, right? Line drills and then two-man work, more emphasis on weapons, right? These mm-hmm. days when uh, you know people say, how many weapons do you know? They're basically saying, how many weapon forms do you know? Right? We're not right. talking about weapon systems. A system should have basics, should have maybe a, a form or, or combinations of those basics, right? And then you have two-man training, right? Mm. And then you may even have equipment training, right? right. Um, but most of the time, how we, you know, if you, if, you, if you see anybody who says, I've mastered 18 weapons, it's mainly 18 weapon forms. It's not a system. Yeah. Right? That, and that's totally disconnected from fighting. I, I don't, we're not disrespecting them, you know, but... No. I guess it's kind of a modern-day lens you're looking through when you say I'm a master of 18 weapons, like you're a master of 18 weapon forms. Right, right. right. Tao Lu is right. not combat. Tao Lu, yeah. yeah. Right. Not, not combat. Right. And uh, I, I think it's interesting how open-minded you are. Not many people that do traditional martial arts are. They kind of – I've read some 
insane things on Facebook. You know, when like an MMA clip comes up, and you know, some traditional guys like, man, that guy. You know, if I was uh, that close, I use my you know brutal chin on. I use my you know yes. internal BS. power, and I'm like, BS. yeah, come on, man. I mean, the total opposite of that is that if there is a technique that looks like kung fu, oh look, hey, he did a trolley foot south short. Right. right. Oh, look, he did a baji elbow. I'm like, no, that the, you're, you, you can't just pick and choose mm-hmm. uh, what what things look like coming for what is it, right? They're technically, if, if you really want to go to the original meaning, they have Kung Fu, right? right. They, they put in the time and the work, they're training it. That's their Kung Fu, just like you have your Kung Fu. I, I think what we need to think about is, you know, as these systems have been passed on to the modern day, you know, with the forms and the basics and the two-man and whatever. I, I don't find any problems with that kind of training. I think those should be passed on, those should be preserved. There's nothing mm-hmm. wrong with forms, but how can we update the teaching approach, right? right. So maybe we could have some pad work, right, earlier mm-hmm. on, right? Maybe we could do more sparring earlier on, not just right. like, you know, uh, passive technique where someone holds out their arm and you do a bunch of techniques. Like Kung Fu San Su. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, <laughs> I'm not going to name names. I, I don't want to get a flame for so yeah. I'm not going to name names about Kung Fu or Kung Fu Satsu. Some Kung Fu Satsu guys, those guys could fight back in the day. And that was, for a lot of American uh, martial art pioneers, that's what they started with. And I, right. I'm going to give Like Tim Carmel. I mean, a lot of very respectful martial art. Res- for sure. You know, for sure. yeah, Sansu. And then sure. It led them to more traditional arts, but right. Sansu right. was a base. Yeah, uh, but we can we can do something about introducing those elements earlier on, right? mm-hmm. and maybe making forms a later aspect, right? Or, or maybe training them in lines again, right? And, and, and dissecting them, dissecting them that way. So that's up to us, right? There's nothing wrong with the style, the art itself, but how we can train it for the present day and make it interesting. We should try to make it interesting. We gotta make kung fu. I hate to use this sexy again. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how, how do we get people in on it? How do we increase its appeal? We have to appeal to those elements. Right. right. And, 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 you know, the, the teacher that says, like, look, you're not ready for that. You're not ready for power work unless you stand in the horse dance or you stand in sound teacher for three years, whatever. Um, you know, we got to do away with some of these these rituals. If you don't have an explanation for it, I'm just going to assume you don't know why, right? You right. just did it because monkey see, monkey do, right? Right. You know, th- this day with you know the advent of Western science, if I'm going to say something to somebody, I got to have proof of it, right? Mm. I got to have a reason for it. If I don't know, I don't know. I tell my patient, look, I don't know everything about what's going on, but you know, here's how I'm going to help you, mm. right? Uh, and the same thing with my kung fu is the same thing. If I don't know, I'm going to ask somebody, and if they don't know, then Maybe we can figure something out as a possible explanation, right? right? But we gotta, we gotta, we gotta update that approach, the teaching approach, right? Jigoro Kano did a great thing when he made a curriculum, right, based on all those traditional uh, Japanese jujitsu yuha, right? He formed a former sport that still has importance of the present day, yeah, which Kung made Fu. BJJ. BJJ comes from right. judo, doesn't come right. from jujitsu. Right. A lot of people don't really know that. It's it's literally it was an evolution. It's post in judo. It's it's pre-Olympic judo, basically more traditional right. judo. That's what BJJ derives Interesting from. Interesting that you would know that fact because a lot of people don't know about Western judo, right? And kung right. fu needs to go through a, a similar evolution in its teaching approach, right? We need mm-hmm. to think about 
think about this objectively and reflect on how are we going to pass this on. If not, if we don't figure that out, it is going to go away and it will right. be our fault. It won't be the fault of, of newer generations of people. I'm already considered when I compete, just being 35, I'm considered part of the elder category. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it won't it won't be their fault that they're not learning. It'll be our fault for not learning how to teach it on. Right? Yeah. Well, I mean, imagine going to a boxing school and the instructor has you stand in place for the first, I don't know, weeks or month or whatever. Let's say it's even just three weeks. Nobody's, nobody's going to go back. I mean, <laughs> for sure. You know, and I, I went to a boxing gym, uh, you know, when I was living in the Chicago area um, for a year and a half. And from day one, you know, he taught me how to punch and then we were hitting bags from day one. Yes. Right, and condition. Right? Mm. Um, and, and, that's something that I've been trying to think about is like, let's say, you know, somebody came up to me and only had 30 minutes of my time or an hour of my time, or they had, you know, 10 years of their time, right? How can I make their time valuable in 30 minutes? Can I explain what Kung Fu is and give them something that they would, they would find satisfying. And in, in 10 years, could I, could I think of something that could make them, you know, evolve as a martial artist. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been, I've been trying to think about that because, you know, and it, it's not cheapening, Kung Fu at all, you know. We we are a we are a social media generation. We like things in in, in you know small little uh, bite sized pieces. Um, but you know, not everybody wants to learn everything, and that's fine. Uh, I don't I don't need the burden of passing on my Shifu system in its entirety, right? Mm-hmm. I want to make sure that I'm making people happy, right? Satisfied with what they're able to 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 learn from me, mm-hmm. right? Um, I taught a Tai Chi. Uh, I taught young style Tai Chi to a group of elderly people in Detroit for six years when I was a, a resident and, uh, and a medical student when I lived in Michigan. And initially I was like, why can't they learn the long form? Why can't they learn sword? Why can't they learn saber? You know, I need to pass on this whole thing. I get frustrated, I get angry. And then I started realizing, no, wait a bit. They're here to, they're, they're spending their time with me. They're driving through the snow and ice in the winter time to come and train with me. And I just want to put a smile on their face. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, and when I started thinking to myself, look, we're just going to take this form. We're going to break it down into single movements and we're going to do them in lines. Right. And we're going to do laps across the church, uh, back and forth, back and forth. And then we'll do some push hands and then we'll, we'll have a discussion about maybe a technique or two if they're willing. And I was surprised, right. When you, you the idea of introducing push hands to a bunch of 70, 80 year olds might be a little bit scary, but I found out that it improved their proprioception. They had a better sense of their bodies in space, right? They had fun with it. I saw them smile again. I was smiling again and I didn't have that pressure. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I've been trying to think about that more depending on my audience and who, who wants to, who I might be able to share my comfort with. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, how can I, how can I tailor that approach to make that person feel happy? Right. right. And, and, and sure. in that kung fu. Right? Well, you're not going to turn a seven year old into a fighter. That's no, I no, mean. no, no. But I can do something about how they move. Right. I can right. maybe decrease their fall risk by a little bit. Mm-hmm. Right. I can maybe give them a little bit of exercise rather than being in the nursing home the whole time. Right. I have a clip of me teaching uh, one of my students who is in her, you know, mid 80s. And I had taken the 24 form and I did it uh, from a, like just while you're seated. Right. And I saw her when I first came and she was a little younger, you know, we would do the form and she would follow and she had, you know, hip replacement. And as she got older, we did it in a chair 
And I was very happy to film that clip with her and, 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 and have that time with her. And she's still, you know, she's still practicing on her own, mm-hmm. right? So a clear goal in mind, right? A clear intention of what you want to teach, right? Um, and it should be tailored to the person. Um, yeah. That's that's kind of what I'm endeavoring in my personal Kung Fu practice and, and how I portray it to others. Yeah, that is phenomenal. I remember that clip. That was really touching. Actually, that was that was yeah. fantastic. So, do you, uh, how does your wife feel about you being a kung fu fanatic? Is she supportive? Is she into it? Or she may be listening to this podcast later. So, uh, you know, I'm I'm gonna be I'm gonna give you like a very sort of uh, politically correct response. Mm-hmm. Um, my, so wife my wife is Chinese. has no interest. My wife's Chinese. She has no interest. She doesn't even get it. My, so. wife, my wife has no interest. During the pandemic, I, we did try to do some Tai Chi together. Um, and she got through maybe three-fourths of the 24 form. And then we, we, we got, she just didn't want to do it anymore. So. Right. Um, you know, I thought I would impress her and my in-laws by saying, look, you know, I, I've spent a lot of time learning Gong Fu. Um, you know, I, I try to learn Mandarin with my Kung Fu teacher. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I learned how to play Urkhu in the last two years, right? And then my father-in-law asked me, hey, do you play golf? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was like, no, I don't. And the, the conversation just went dead. Right. Um, so, you know, she, she knows that, you know, I married Kung Fu before I married her. She knows that it's a big part of my life. And as so long as I, you know, try to come back home on time and let her know where I'm going to be, right? I'm not cheating on her. I'm not drinking. I'm not doing drugs. I'm usually hanging out with a bunch of old people at a park, right? Mm-hmm. Um, she finds it sort of innocuous. Right. You know, I just need to be, I need to be upfront about the time that I spend because I lose track of time. Right. Same here with me. And that is the probably the only real issue. But I remember, I, I remember like, I never got her to go to a single karate class with me back when I did Shotokan in China, which is weird. You know, I did Shotokan in China um, or Sanda. She wouldn't do either of those with me. And back here in America, she's not doing any of it. Um, you know, I, again, I thought I can impress her with some of the things I could do. Look, I can do a spinning hook kick. I can do the splits. But nope, it's just dumb. But she thoroughly enjoys boxing. She loves doing boxing. Yes, we do that together. Um, oh, well, that's that's nice. That's nice. Yeah. My wife, my wife uh, said that she enjoyed my boxing clips and my Muay Thai clips the most. She said that I look like a badass. Yeah, um, you know, it's th- same with my wife. When I do something more kickboxing oriented, she likes it more yeah. boxing. But yeah. when it looks more karate, she's like, eh, you know. Yeah. And then do you watch MMA? I watch a little, but I got to be honest, like the last couple of months I've, cause I've been worried about my wedding and honeymoon mm. and traveling. I, I haven't really, I haven't been up to date on the latest fights. Well, she watched, you, you do, you're, you know who Leo, Leoto Machida is, right? Oh yeah, of course. Right. She sure, saw him sure, fight sure. and she looked at me and she's like, oh my gosh, no. And she hated the way he fought, you know, fighting at a distance, not engaging in the pocket. You know what I mean? And, well, he, uh, I mean, he's tactical, right? Yeah. But she so, saw the Shotokan that I did, and it just drove her crazy. She hates that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, she likes watching, like, boxing or MMA fighters that fight more in the pocket. You know what I mean? Sure, sure. So, um, so it, it, when she saw that, she just got – she's like, oh, no. <laughs> she did not <laughs> want to – she's like, no more of this guy, please. But, yeah, it was really funny. But – um. Again, it, uh, we've been going for an hour. I do you mind if we continue, or are you kind of? Sure, 
I'm, I'm afraid. Okay, cool. So, what keeps you going in Kung Fu now? You know, you've done it for several years. Uh, you're still learning forms, which is cool. I don't have an issue with people form collecting. I, I, I'm not trying to label you too harshly on that. You know, a lot of people take issue with it. You know, but if you, you know, you're, honestly, you're on your own I've, path. I've, 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 yeah, I've heard, I've heard about it, and I really, yeah, exactly. I'm on my own path. I, I'm, I'm okay with it. Um, and people don't understand. Like, I do dissect the forms. I try to understand it my own way. I just don't. I don't. I don't really talk about it, right? Um, I just put out that kind of media so people just assume like, oh, Vian just does every single style and every single form and all of that. And they just think, oh, that's all he does. He's just right. a dancer. Right. Um, sometimes, you know, forms were were taught to me as, a, as sort of, a, you know, I was in the right place at the right time. And who was I to say no to something, right? Other times, I also harbored... Uh, you know, because I, I enjoy reading about Chinese martial arts history. You know, in some small way, I thought that by by learning the form, I could learn about the person. Right? One of the books that I loved reading uh, growing up was Robert W. Smith's book, right? Uh, Chinese uh, martial master, the, the the one with the red cover on. Yeah, I have the, a copy um, of that. <laughs> right, and I, I I hate to admit this, but I endeavored to get as close to those individuals in that book as possible. Right. Mm-hmm. In the United States, at least. Right. So, for example, Gaofang Xian, which is mentioned in the book, right, who was a northern Shaolin and Tai Chi person. Well, I heard his name again when I was talking to my sheriff and he's like, you know, when I was in competition in Taiwan, uh, I was sparring against somebody who did long fist. And usually, you know, people sort of put down long fist and say, oh, it's too flashy. It's doesn't really it's not practical, blah, blah, blah. But he's like, you know. I, I fought against a guy who did long fist. He was a student at Gaofang Xian. He did very good, right? So here again, I hear this name, right? And then when I've been when I was in Harleysville, Pennsylvania, visiting a friend, I found out that one of his one of the schools there, right? One of the teachers there was somehow linked to Gaofang Xian, right? So you know when when you have this this name that reappears in your life, whether it be a book or mentioned by a person, it just fuels in you that desire right to learn something about that person right? right get closer to his art right um and you know that's that's been a big push for me uh to do all the traveling and the kung fu kung fu journeys that i've been on is really just to to, to talk and to, to to learn something right get a, get just be able to share time and, and, and be mm-hmm. able to get that aspect right yeah i don't practice everything i don't remember everything i film most of it right um there's some things that, you know, I, I've, I've done a couple of times and then I've let it go because it just didn't agree with me. Right. Um, other things that, you know, I do it because when I think about when I'm doing that form, I, I think about that relationship that I had with that person. It brings back fond memories. And you know that's why I preserve. Right. Mm-hmm. So there's an emotive quality to practice that people people forget. They just see a video and they're like, oh, you know, it's just a forms guy. Oh. I don't post my I don't post my sparring fights because sometimes you know I get my ass hit or I kick somebody's ass. No one wants to watch that. I'm good. Mm-hmm. Uh, but seeing like you know the whole thing, my 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 whole project is look, you know my mine is a resource. Some people have even admitted to me that they've learned from my videos. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, I don't think there's a secret form. I paid lots and lots of money over the years to learn everything that I did, and I I, I never take money from from people from I don't sell my footage or whatever it's all there mm-hmm. um, I have my day job as a physician so I just do it because I enjoy it maybe mm-hmm. you know it can help somebody right uh, maybe it leads them to want to you know 
learn about a different style, whatever. You know, it's just open resource. YouTube, Wikipedia, that all's very helpful to people. Why not contribute to that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that's just been my my endeavor. Well, that is fantastic. I noticed you did a, a drunken form. Was that from Hungar or from Choi Le Fut? Which, which... <laughs> I, uh, the one drunken form, so I did a drunken form and two forms from a drunken system. So when I was in Phoenix, Arizona, uh, I went with my wife to an allergy conference. Right? She's an allergist. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was not a conference, just a full, full of people with allergies. And while I was there, because I'm not an allergist, I'm a, I'm a dementia specialist, I thought, you know, I'm going to go check out the Kung Fu scene in Phoenix, Arizona. And I connected with this uh, seafood, his name was Michael Kinney. And he had learned um, northern styles from his seafood, seafood cook. And I wanted to get an introduction to the drunken form. Um, so he taught me that, that short drunken form, right? And it was great. I, I, why would I want to learn the drunken style? Mainly because of movies, right? Mm-hmm. I, I love Jackie Chan's Drunken Master too. One of my favorites, right? Mm-hmm. The other thing is, is that it's so, it just breaks the mold, right, of a lot of traditional structure, right? If you look at curriculums for multiple styles, whether it be Cholifut or uh, uh, you know Northern Mantis, you'll realize that there's usually a drunken form as one of the last things that you know, right? Mm-hmm. So there's something about something to be said when you're constructing a curriculum you're, you teach these people all these forms and build up this corpus of technique and all of a sudden at the end they say hey don't do that anymore do something else right why why do people do that why do why do instructors why do styles do that right? because they don't want people to be locked into a mold right to be able to to be flexible right? take on other methods right have that sort of open attitude right so um, I was like, okay, well, you know, I, I come from a very structured background during Northern Shaolin and Baji. We're very precise about how we want people to stand in stances, how we want people to deliver power. So maybe doing drunken style could help me, quote unquote, lighten up. Right? And it was definitely challenging. Right? Um, so he gave me he gave me that form, and I, I respect him a lot for doing that. That's why I want to give a shout out. And then when I went back to Chicago. Um, I found uh, Shufu Danny Schultz, who um, teaches in Illinois, and he had learned from uh, Shufu Neil Ripsky in Canada. And they did uh, a style of, of drunken fist, which they called a Ma family style. And he, he shared with me the basics of that. We did uh, two forms together, and then um, he showed me uh, applications and some two-man stuff. So. Um, and once I learned it, I know that I don't look the greatest doing it, but I decided to post it right, and share with others like, hey, this is what this is the drug and stuff that I would, I, would, I would always love to hear back. Hey, you know, you're not doing that right. Or I got a drunken I got an idea about drunken style that, you know, you may not know about. Let me share that with you. But so far, I haven't gotten those comments back. It's just been, oh, you've done drunken style too. Mm-hmm. So, Have you yeah. traveled to, to China at all or Taiwan? I don't know. I went to Beijing and I went to Hong Kong. Nice. I haven't been to I haven't been to Taiwan yet, and that was supposed to be on my bucket list uh, before I started work, but then COVID happened and life happened, couldn't go. For for me, being part of Wuhan, like you know, like Taiwan is like our mecca, right? Right. Um, but unfortunately, I, I haven't been able to travel there. So, but I look forward to doing that in the future. How has COVID like affected your training? Uh. Hmm. 
Well, you know, I think initially with, uh, you know, in the ease of the pandemic and not really, like none of us really knew what to do, right? Not even in the, within the medical profession. So a lot of schools stopped having classes right? and everyone was, was slowly transitioning online. And so, um, you know, I, luckily my Scherzer does an online class every Sunday and he's, he started that with the pandemic and he's continued to do that. So it's nice to be able to check in. You, it used to be where the only time I check in with him was when I would go home, right? To Southern California. But now we get regular contact. You know, he recently, you know, was joking at me. He's like, Oh, how many students do you have now? I was like, I have one, right? Well, that's pretty good. Oh, how many forms do you know of yet? Too many for full, right? Um, so it's nice to be able to check in with with teachers. Um, I, I think, like especially with this pandemic, like I, I've the last two years, I, I've wanted to record everything. Um, so it's made for a very insular practice, right? Um, I have interacted with some people, um, you know, and, and done some two man stuff, but definitely a lot more solo, solo training. Um, yeah, most of the videos that I've shared have been from this period of time, not really that much before. Mm-hmm. And it's basically because, you know, we were we, we, we didn't have we had so much time to do other things right, than our jobs. So. Right. It's it's interesting how much it's, it's changed because, you know, in the past, especially in the 90s, you know, if you said you learned on like from a video, which is not that much different from online learning, people would scoff at it. Mm-hmm. Now it's like people realize you can actually learn online. I mean, you are missing a lot. There's no question, obviously, you know, but if you, if you have a base, if you have some structure, you can, you online learning is quite good. You know, I would, right. yeah. And for a lot of people, you know, it's kind of hard to accept that, but I mean, we both know it's actually worked. It's worked out for a lot I of people. Right. I think that certainly if, if you're just wanting to try martial arts out and starting online, like I, I've, I've seen some of those individuals, they have a harder time of, of catching on. But if you do have a foundation, you're able to um, especially translate movement from a 2D surface to to a 3D space. Mm-hmm. Right? Not everybody has that capacity. Um, I think it, it, it is a it is something that, you know, I think it's here to stay. Right, online learning and, mm-hmm. and, and what have you. So more and more teachers are putting out online programs out there. People are connecting over Zoom. Um, it's it's the future, and we, we need to we need to change with it, right? And mm-hmm. make things available. Right? Speaking of future, what is the future of Chinese martial arts in, in a modern MMA world? You know, uh, Muay Thai is fine, obviously. You know. Uh, Taekwondo and karate seems to be slowly coming around, you know, to being a part of MMA. I feel like Kung Fu is still kind of stuck in a rut. I don't mean, I'm not trying to, you know, be disrespectful by saying that, but I think it's obvious that it kind of is. It's not, I don't, you don't have to compete in MMA. You don't have to fight MMA fighters, but uh, the, the, the aforementioned arts kind of learn how to deal with those situations. Does that make sense? Sure. You know, um, what's what's the future with, with Chinese martial arts? It has great body mechanics, tremendous structure. You know, you could develop great power. There's health. There's the health aspects. You know, there's the, a deep, rich cultural, you know, history you can get involved in, which is very fulfilling. Where 
what what's the future? How could it continue to to grow with this current uh, climate? I, I, in my humble opinion, I, I definitely want to preface this. This is just my personal opinion. I think that we, I, I hope to see more Chinese kung fu practitioners, whether they be you know foreigners or mainland China or Taiwanese, Hong Kong, greater Chinese world. I hope to see them more in MMA. I mean, I think that that that's that's the main avenue mm-hmm. to keep to keep it going, right? Uh, because we we. Our problem within Chinese martial arts has been that we have been so insular, right? Uh, not just with within our families, within our styles, but also within our community at large. The Chinese martial arts—we've done a lot to, you know, denigrate each other and put people down. And we don't need any of that. But mm. you know, I think some some sporting events on an international stage, right? With uh, with you know an accepted rule set, I think would make would bring Kung Fu back, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, most recently, you know, Byron did a interview with uh, a very famous Chen Manchin practitioner who went to Chen Village and basically schooled them, right? And afterwards, it, it changed their rule set forever, right? Um, you know, we need to look beyond our styles, mm-hmm. right? And, and compete with others. We can't say, well, you know, hey, it's a push hands event. I was at a, I, I was at a push hands event uh, a couple of years back, and I was the, it was one of the first times I was judging, so I got to be privy to some of these conversations. And you know, the idea that they had was like we're going to open this up to you know practitioners of other styles, but we want to make sure that they're not pushing too hard because Tai Chi people don't know how to fall, don't know how to fall. Mind you, next to them, there were there was judo people competing, there were sandal people competing, and tai chi people were just pushing people enough so they could lose their balance but not fall because that would be too much, right? Mm-hmm. Anybody looking at that would want to vomit in their mouth, right? Again, going uh, with I that can't mindset. watch the push hand stuff, man. It's just yeah. it's frustrating. Yeah. It looks like bad yeah. judo to me. Like I'd rather. Oh yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, and anyone, anyone not a kung fu practitioner or a tai chi practitioner looking at something like that would have a hard time rationalizing why they would want to spend their time and invest into that. Right? Mm-hmm. So if we can't explain it amongst each other, right, objectively, then we cannot explain what we do to other people and how, how to get other people into it. We need to, when we say fine, I'm going down, right, how to spread our arts, we have to make it. We have to make it appealing to others, right? We can't just say, "Well, it's not good for you. Never mind. You don't. You can go on your merry way." Right? We need to update our training, and right. I think the the biggest step is to have more kung fu people compete in international competition, mm-hmm. right? With other styles, right? Um, and and maybe you know if they do well enough, people are going to ask, "Hey, you know." How do you train, right? Leo Machida put Shotokan, I'm not going to say he put it on the map, but certainly people became interested in his style, right? How he, you know, got, he started with Shotokan and then, you know, learned some other stuff to, to bolster that. But he fights from, you know, that kind of longer um, stance, right? And people mm-hmm. asked about that. I would love people to, to ask about, you know, people doing Kung Fu and why did they do that if they were successful in MMA competition. Right. right? So I think that's part of it. 
And yeah, I think another thing is just having, you know, open conversations with others on a small mm-hmm. level, right? And not not being about secrets. I should be able, to, again, to convey the essence of my Kung Fu, my practice with somebody. If you have 30 minutes or you have three years, 30 years, how can I keep it going? How can I keep this dialogue going? I don't want to be by myself. No, com- no, Nobody's an island, right? Mm-hmm. We, we, work, we function as a community. So we need to open up and be able to show other people everything that we can that's what i think right very well said and to backtrack a little bit on the push hands thing i I don't even think again i'm not a taiji guy so this is just my opinion unformed however if it's a training tool why is it a competition right (laughs) it doesn't make sense to me it's like like i I hit the makiwara right like there's no, exactly. There's no Makiwara <laughs> competitions. You know, there's no push-ups, like doing push-up competitions. Like, oh, right. well, who's got the best push-up? Like, right. I mean, I don't understand why is that even a competition? Yeah. It almost seems... And, go ahead. And if you want to make a competition, then don't be so uh, strict about the fixed-up fixed push hands, right? Right. Being full facial, right? Let, let it be moving, mm-hmm. right? And, and, and allow, Start from allow, a distance. allow somebody to lift their leg up, right? And, and, and do some do, do some swag out, right? You know, going back in the stories, right? Whether you talk about Yang Lushai, like the founder of Yang Style, and how, you know, there was a bird in his hand and he was so soft that the bird couldn't 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 launch off its feet to fly out of his hand, right? And, <laughs> yeah. and all these incredible stories that we have. Okay, you know, let's let's give some some scientific credence to it, okay? Um, if you're going to compete with Taiji, right, and you have that skill set, right? Okay, then then I have my skill set. Don't restrict my skill set. I will restrict yours. Let's play, right, fully, right? Sporting uh, combat sports has given us that insight, right? We need to do the same, even within these traditional games that we play, right? Traditional, right? That's one thing, right? Uh, we we got we got to update it. We my sheriff has been saying for a long time, like he doesn't like fixed fixed hand, fixed step push hands, we should be doing, uh, you know, moving push hands. I think that's one way. It, it, it's a step in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Right? Well, I mean, uh, one of the reasons why I think the different styles of karate have been able to adapt to full contact fighting mm-hmm. is the simple, even if it's point fighting, at least they have sparring. And point fighting, people, a lot of people talk crap about it, but distance, timing, you know, counter-striking, all that stuff, you, you learn that in point fighting. Sure. You know, like sure. Machida is a point fighter. Steven Thompson, mm-hmm. he, he's a point fighter, but they're counter-striking their movement second to none. You know, um, but just having some type of sparring, you know, where you hit and get hit, even if it's point fighting, is, is a step in the right direction. Or... Uh, full contact karate, you know, there's different types of knockdown, like Kyokushin and other types of knockdown karate, you know, so you have the point, you have the full contact in karate, and in Taekwondo, you know, you get the ITF type sparring, you get the, the WT's type sparring. Mm-hmm. So because they have that, you know, live sparring, movement, footwork, it can only help. Even if it's limited, like in Shotokan, you can only do Shotokan techniques when you spar, obviously, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's limited, but it also... One, it keeps the you know the the nature of the style pure. I, I know it sounds weird saying that, you know, and you learn how to use it against someone who's resisting you, even sure. in, even in a limited format. Like I'm okay if someone, let's say there's a Baji competition. I don't know if Baji could be point fighting, you know, um, 
but let's say you can only compete using Baji techniques. They limit the techniques sure. to that. That's sure. still putting you on a better path than no sparring or no competition. Does that make sense? Sure. Yeah. I, I like I, I'd like to answer that question like two ways, right? Mm-hmm. That 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 topic in two ways. Like one thing is that how we train sparring in kung fu should not be, hey, you go from form to sparring, right? Right. Um, some of the the best teachers that I met, like one of them, you know, I, I'm going to be stealing some some ideas from Sifu Mike Bay in Akron, Ohio. He teaches Seven Star Mantis and Trolley Foot. You know, you basically have to uh, have some kind of progression. Maybe in the beginning, you guys only do like hand techniques, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, or one person's defending, one person's attacking, right? right. Uh, and then you you switch roles, right? Um, or you, you said that, well, you're going to do, you're going to try this throw within this round, right? Within this, this like minute or three minutes, right? You're going to try this technique as many times as you can, right? And you start realizing, hey, the entry, never mind the technique, is, is difficult to pull off, right? So you gotta, you got to make these small approximations, and then you start doing three smart. And that's not something that... I don't see a lot of Kung Fu people doing. Mm-hmm. And so when you get sparring, when, when you see the two Kung Fu people spar, you're like, well, where's their Baji technique? Where's their Tian Shan Pai technique? Where's their Shaolin technique? Well, they, they haven't been training that. It ends up looking really bad. It ends up right. They haven't trained very soft. Right? But that, that, that's kind of what I'm saying is that, look, there's nothing wrong with the style. There's nothing wrong with techniques or having a lot of techniques, right? But you have to put those techniques under pressure. You have mm-hmm. to reflect on distance, timing, and precision, right? Um, and you, you you have to build up somebody up to that, right? Right. Um, but you can't expect somebody who, who's who been doing forms or just been doing John Zhuang or Santi sure for years and years and years, like you said, and then all of a sudden, you know, be able to spar like a pro. Right. Right. Uh, Toisho is is a per, is is a step in that progression. Toisho was not the end all historically, right? Mm-hmm. Yang Lushan, he became like Yang Wudi, like Yang, pure, peerless Yang, right? No one could defeat him. It's because he went and sparred people, right? It wasn't right. because he was push hands with people all the time. Right? Well, he was humble enough to try to get his butt kicked every now and again to learn how to. Right. So we we have to we have to figure out using you know we like kung fu has a lot of different reference points from other styles right we could I don't mind taking an idea from karate right I don't mind taking an idea from from MMA let's do some of that mm-hmm. right? uh, and some people who who really stand out right now in the American kung fu scene like Tim Carmel right they have been able to do that right? and that's right. why that's why they they enjoy that kind of reputation. And other people can do the same thing. Tim Carmel is not uh, putting a trademark on his approach. When I met him in person in Ohio, I found him to be very open, right? He was willing to answer all my questions, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, he didn't say, well, you can't do that. This is my approach. We, we're wanting to learn from everybody. But how to teach, right? How to practice, that, that's something that we need to reflect on. Right? Right. And I think that we need to figure out how to make, make these little exercises so mm-hmm. we can create good fighters right well i mean i i again you know we, we bring up byron a lot but i respect the fact that he went into bjj with no background in it purely to use his bagua and shingi i mean in the beginning you know the mechanic he can't punch and kick him and palm him obviously but you know he went in there to test it you know in right. their format which is very respectable you know and it right. probably only helped him you know, I mean, right. there's no Bakwa sparring competitions. There's no Shingi sparring competitions. 
I know he spars. With his... I don't. We don't. We don't know. I, there might. There might very well be. Yeah, right? yeah. I don't know. I haven't um, heard. I heard anything. back in the day in Taiwan, like a lot of uh, you know those those freestyle competitions had a lot of Tang Shoudao who uh, people who did a lot of sparring. But mm-hmm. I don't know if there's like a sparring division. I I can't say. I haven't seen everything. I don't know. But there shouldn't be, right? Right. <laughs> but that's what he had to do to, in order to get that feeling in, you know. Yeah. And I respect that a lot. I respect a lot of people that do that. Um, Speaking of sparring, what do you think of full contact sparring? I'm not a fan, you know, because the brain obviously doesn't recover. (laughs) I'm sure you know that, obviously. So, you know, you you can't Uh, strengthen your chin, you know. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny because, you know, uh, cry traumatic encephalopathy, you know, CTE, where we don't know the number of hits the head is able to take. Right. Uh, you know, you could look at somebody like Muhammad Ali and he took some pretty hard hits. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, he developed Parkinsonism at the end. I, I've never seen an MRI of his brain, so I don't know whether he may have sustained, you know, maybe some tiny micro hemorrhages. I won't I, I won't profess to know. Right. And you have other people, you know, in the NFL, they, you know, they've had maybe a couple of concussions, not as much, and they develop some pretty significant symptoms. Right. I, right. I've seen some people in clinic. Just being a dementia specialist, I've seen some people in clinic who, you know, after having not really a great career in the NFL, but they came back and they got swindled by some telemarketers and they stole off their estate, right? Mm-hmm. So it's hard to know how many hits a brain can take. It's different for every single person. We don't have criteria in the medical world saying that, you know, you can have so many incidences of TBI and still come out okay. And you can have so many incidences of traumatic brain injury and and develop dementia we don't have those statistics right, right. Um, everyone seems so, to be different though right pardon everyone seems to be unique to that i, I there's no... Every, everybody everybody's different yeah. everybody's different and I, I think like we need to take into account you know what kind of tv right obviously you know getting tackled right is different from hitting a tree when you're seeing down a a, a mountain slope mm-hmm. right we don't really know. We just see the after effects. It's like, oh, there's a big bleed on there, right? There's some shearing of the, the cerebral veins there, right? Every every TBI can can is, is distinct, like snowflakes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so in terms of like full contact sparring, um, honestly, like you know, for fighting, it should be treated like a job, right? Those MMA guys, they're conditioning, they're putting their all. Right. And for the weekend warrior to just engage in full contact sparring as a physician, I'm not a big fan. Right. Mm-hmm. I'm not a big fan. Right. Um, if you know the risk and you want to make a decision, you know, uh, based on your interest and where your your life trajectory is, so be it. Right. Um, but I think personally, as a Kung Fu practitioner, I, I'm looking for the longevity of my practice. Right. right? I, I, I want to get sparring in to be able to understand those aspects I talked about, distance, timing, precision. But I know that I am not meant for the ring, right? Mm-hmm. I, I don't condition enough, and I'm not training for that purpose, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so personally, not a fan, right? Um, but I do think that people should have the decision of what they want to do with their life. And if they want to go into full contact fighting, they should Right? They should be yeah. able to, right? But but be aware of the repercussions when mm. you see me in clinic, right? And you're suffering yeah. from dementia, and you ask me those questions of why you don't remember. Well, then I point that out, right? Right. Uh, I've seen many a hockey, man, those hockey players, they would just 
sometimes I just feel like they just like I people go to hockey games just to see them fight really right right uh, but some of the patients that I see they're surprised when they're like well I can't remember I've had so many confessions but uh, doctor why can't I remember like, isn't it obvious right yeah. Like I, well, if I if I ever saw a patient when I saw a patient when I was in residency and said, "Well, it hurts when I move my arm this way." What would be my biggest piece of advice? Don't move your arm that way, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's that's the easiest cure, right? The same thing here. It's like, did you really think that your brain could take that much damage and you'd be okay? Uh, you, you're 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 definitely your own person. You can make that decision, but I wouldn't do it. Right. So, yeah. I mean, full contact fighting is one thing. I think early MMA people would spar full contact, but then you could see the effect it had on them in the ring. It hurt their performances, hurt their career longevity. I think most schools now don't really do that anymore. They probably go like five, maybe 10% at the most, you know? But even going 10%, you move the wrong way, you run into someone's knee, you you know, that's it. You can see it too. Some guys, like one fight, they have the greatest chin in the world. They take tremendous blows. The next fight, they get clipped and they just go out. Yeah, they're knocked out. They're wobbly like that. Yeah, they, they, they just walk, they fall down like a mannequin and that's it. And they're never the same, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that's like, again, I'm, I agree with you. I'm not a fan of full contact sparring. Yeah. I, I remember. Well, we're, we're, we, we, we have our day jobs, you know? Right. We, we, we have I'm a realtor. You're a doctor. Come back to. I, I'm not. I'm I am I wouldn't say I'm a weekend warrior. I, I'm I'm definitely like committed to practicing kung fu, mm-hmm. uh, but I I'm a physician as well, right? And I've seen that damage, and I don't want that to happen to me. And I would hate to see it happen to others, right? Right. Um, I admit when I spar, I'm okay with losing. I, I do have a little bit of attitude. If I get hit in the head too much, I want to hit him back. Right? right. But I feel an immense sense of guilt. When I punch somebody else, when I punch somebody in the head, I don't feel it immediately after because I know I got back at them. But when I come back home, I sort of reflect because I, 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 when I was a kid, I used to get in fights and I remember getting yelled at by my parents. And even though my dad has passed away, you know, I, I think about those times I get yelled at and it, it echoes in my mind. You know, mm-hmm. you know, you, you shouldn't be doing that. Um, that's just that's just me. That's just me. Right. Right. Um, but again, I will admit, I don't feel guilty when I get back at them right at that moment. It feels pretty good, mm-hmm. right? Uh, it's just when I get back, like when I drive back home and I, I, my, my, my wife sees me fuming and, you know, I settle down a little bit. It's like, you know, did I really have to do that, right? Right. I don't know. That's different for everybody. Yeah. I, I felt guilty before, you know, you know, doing <laughs> karate, you'll spar people just barely turning 18 and then sure. you know I hit him with a spinning back into the body on act like I didn't mean to hit him full force but he ran into it and sure. I felt terrible and his parents are right there he fell down and started vomiting it was like, oh my gosh like I know exactly how you feel and it's not not a good feeling Suffering. no Suffering. it's terrible Suffering. and I, I think a lot of these athletic commissions should be letting these guys fight you know after a certain amount of knockouts certain damage like they should be forced into retirement you know i mean i don't know how a lot of these guys get cleared yeah i don't know and and you know uh, i was kind of looking about looking into like being a fight doctor and everything and, and it's it's so subjective right right um and a lot of it you know a lot of times what we do in medicine is cover your ass kind of things just so we don't get sued right right uh, some people will, some doctors will decide to keep the keep the guy fighting so they don't get sued for pulling him out, right? And some people pull him out because they don't want to see them suffer too much, right? Mm-hmm. But that just depends on the person, right? 
I know when I when I uh, was the standby doctor for a previous competition, if I would ask, I would ask the guy, I would look at him and he's bleeding or whatever, and I could, you know, put some ice on it, put a bandaid on it. But I just ask him straight up, do you want to fight? And if, if I heard no, right, I basically would say, okay, I agree. I'll pull you out, right? Mm-hmm. And if I felt like they couldn't answer my questions, even though, uh, like, they weren't all there, I'd pull them out. Because fighting is not just a physical thing, right? Even if you don't have any damage out of you, you got to be clear of mind, right? In order to be clear right. of body, right? To, to unleash unleash those weapons. And if you're not answering me correctly, you don't have the date, the time, you're not oriented, I'm pulling you out, right? Right. So I, I had a very low threshold for pulling people out. <laughs> I, I, I was like, oh, this is just, I, I don't, I, I don't want to see any long-term damage. Mm-hmm. Right? Oh. Did you ever see Chuck Liddell versus Tito Ortiz three? No, I haven't. If you want to maybe see, I've, maybe I've seen clips of it, but I, I, I don't recall. Well, that is a perfect example of someone that should have never been cleared. Chuck Liddell, you know, it, it, it's, it's really bad. It, it, he's shockingly bad in the ring. He's you know, to say he's a shell of his former self is, is an understatement. And it's sad because he ended up getting knocked out by someone who he annihilated in the past, you know, pretty pretty thoroughly in Tito Ortiz. And it, it I, I, you know, since it, it kind of, co- it, it's connected to your line of work, I think you should check out that fight. And like, well, I, I will, I will. Yeah. I think I heard about this though. I heard about how Chuck Liddell lost, but I didn't know to who. And I, I think I, I, I remember some details in the periphery. It's so, so I'll to, sad. I'll have, I'll have to watch that. It is so sad. And shame on whoever allowed him to fight. Yeah. All it did is just ruin his legacy. And it's it's sad, you know. I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, I respect the dedication that, you know, a lot of people put towards their training in MMA sports, right? Whether mm-hmm. that be BJJ or Muay Thai or combination of both. But, from the people that I've met, I find that a lot of times, you know, their attitude is not mature, right? Uh, they're fighting from a place of ego, right? Right. And rather than use like, you know, there's a lot of bravado that can happen when they're getting weighed in and they're going, they're preparing for their fights. I'm gonna crush the guy, beat the guy, whatever. Um, and really realizing like the fire's mindset is, you know, when you invest in loss and you invest in learning from those experiences, you grow as a person, right? But right. if you just like, you know, puff up your chest and say, you know, I'm king of the world, right? And no one's going to take me down, you know, I'd always come before a fall, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I, and I think that doing traditional martial arts helps to temper that attitude. Right? It does. Um, you know, when you talk, you know, I, I, you know, I remember when I was visiting some relatives in Michigan, um, I visited a karate dojo. The sensei didn't know me, but and, and I, I I knew some of some of his style just by reading about it. But the minute that I walked in and you know I, I talked to him a little bit, you know I could tell I could respect how you know just quiet, serene, how pensive he seemed. Right? He was he was truly listening to my questions and answering me to the best of his ability. And I try to do the same. Right? So you, you're almost like on the same wavelength, right? Um, I think that's that's a value. I, I would say a lot of traditional martial artists would say, oh, my teacher taught me how to be a better person, morals and this. I learn morals just by being a person, right? Mm-hmm. In, in, the, in your walks of life, I shouldn't, you shouldn't have to learn how to be, have to have integrity um, until you do martial arts. That's not, that, that shouldn't be the case for right. most people. You learn, most people learn how to be 
you know, honest, upstanding citizens by just being a person in regular life. Right? Mm-hmm. But you know that attitude of how you how you face things. Right? I know that you know the pressures of being in the hospital when I'm on call or I'm seeing difficult patients. You know, I'm able to to endure to navigate those spaces a little bit better because of what I do on the outside. Right? right? So it's a it's a full rounded experience. Right? Uh, but you know that, that's the one thing that I would I would sort of ask if I could have like an abstract conversation with any MMA practitioner is you know how does this better your life right how how how, how does your training make you a better person how does that help you have conversations with other people and, um, sometimes I feel from talking to these people interacting with these people they think they're the best uh, you know they they point out all these fights and I'm like okay well. How long are you going to be practicing for? Does this make you a better person? Blah, blah, blah. And they're, they're not really able to answer. They're very kind of one mind, one one mindset. Right. right. I'm here to be people. I'm here for this purpose. Okay. And uh, I, I respect confidence, and I mean, you you need to be a bit arrogant if you're going to fight you have to believe in yourself I, I get that but i agree with what you're saying you know if if it's not helping you really grow philosophically as a person you know and, and at the end of the day you're just getting towards the end of your career you're just taking damage getting knocked out why continue you know if you're just becoming a human punchy bag you're not really becoming a better martial artist anymore you know i i think back to that episode of you know homer simpson uh, you know, when he goes around boxing everybody because he can take blows from everybody. Yeah. Right. Uh, that's just, you know, uh, that's just so, uh, just having this conversation about this topic is maybe think about. So. Mm-hmm. That's funny. Well, you know, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. I really appreciate it. I could talk to you all night. You know, we, you know, it's funny. This is like the first real conversation we've had, and it's been phenomenal. Um, I'd love to have you on again, but what would you like to close with? I mean, you know, you get, you got a bit of a following online. You know, people are interested in your stuff. How, how can people get a hold of you or train with you or just have these conversations about kung fu with you? You know, because there's, there's a lot of kung fu enthusiasts out there that are feeling discouraged and I, I do feel bad for them, you know, sure. um, what, what can we say to them to help them persevere and push forward and not give up on Kung Fu? Well, you know, I, I'd like to just, you know, you know, thank you for listening to this podcast. And, and for those that are being discouraged, sort of reflect on, you know, how can we update our teaching approach, right? Or practice approach, right? So let's, let's be honest with ourselves as to why we're training. And if you're not able to answer that question or you just, you answer it from just a historical context, well, I want to be like so-and-so, right? That's not enough, right? It has to make you a better person in some way. And, um, and you know, I, I'd like for people who may be listening to this podcast interested in passing on Kung Fu to really reflect on how can they teach it better to the next generation, um, incorporating those elephants of what we say, yan fa, da fa, gong fa, right? Uh, realizing, you know, what is performance, what is for performance, what is for training structure, what is for uh, training, um, you know, your equipment training, having those aspects in the training. Right? Uh, in terms of contacting me, like, I think, um, you know, I'll, I'll give you my contact information, um, but certainly Facebook is probably the easiest way. Um, emails, you know, I get emails from the hospital and everything, so that can get a kind of a kind of be a mess. I'm I'm currently living in the Seattle area, so 
Um, I recently got permission from my teacher to start taking on people. I'm teaching privately right now. I don't have a class, um, but I would certainly like to be uh, open to anybody who might be interested. Um, and then, yeah, contact me over Facebook. Uh, I'd, I'd love to be able to talk to more people uh, and get some ideas across and just be able to share. And, mm. I kind of want to touch. I appreciate that. But I also want to touch on, I know I wanted to wrap this up, but I got to touch on something you said that kind of made me think, you know, in, in traditional Chinese culture and a lot of Asian cultures, ancestor worship is a, is a big thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, is there a connection? Because like I, when I lived in China, everything was like, oh, old is always better. Older is better. The old way right. is better. It's right. getting worse as, you know, as we move forward. You know, I, I know it's a lot of like a, you know, uh, a little bit tied to Buddhism and whatnot, but also culturally ancestor worship is a big thing. Do you think that's kind of a bit of like a barrier that's like kind of hurting Kung Fu, you know, because like we never feel like we, we could be as good as some of these legendary figures or our teacher or Shufu is always, go ahead. We're always in the shadows of that past, right? Right. So in Vietnamese, we have a term like goal. Right. And I, I think it comes from Chinese Bible, like just, you know, missing the past, thinking of it fondly, looking at the past with, you know, reverse colored glasses, same thing. Right. Um, you know, I, I would say, like, especially like personally from in our Wutan system, we talk about how Li Shu Wen was the god of spear and the Gongbatian had this incredible Qinggong. So he was able to jump off, jump from, you know, from the ground to the rooftop. And, you know, we're, we, we don't have those training methods or we'll never get there. Right. Um, but let's think about this subjectively. We know that, you know, Asian culture uh, honestly has a tendency to blow up or color stories a little bit mm-hmm. of, uh, of detail. Right. And so maybe one thing didn't happen quite like that, but it's been passed on as so. Right. Um, you know, and, and, and really martial arts should get better and better. Right. Um, back then, they didn't have the training devices that we have, right? They didn't have the knowledge of human anatomy that we have. Mm-hmm. Uh, they the training equipment. To, right, training equipment, the, the science, they didn't have that, right? Um, you know, I'm, I'm a Western medicine practitioner, so uh, you know, I, I, I won't profess to say that I know about Chinese medicine that much. Um, but with all that we know now, right, we should try to give some some modern context, right? Some, some modern language, right? Mm-hmm. Like I, I personally, I don't like to use the word Dantian. Right? I just use center of gravity. I, I use my teacher's approach. My mm-hmm. teacher got a degree in chemistry at Dartmouth. He likes to use scientific terms when possible. He mm-hmm. likes to use English terms when possible, right? Um, Kung Fu is in America. We should be using English when we can, okay? Um, so I think we need to first off we need to understand that not all of these stories are true right let's mm. accept that as a basic premise and number two is that let's let's try to see you know what is that grand truth and how we can how we can think about it in the present day to bring it back again if we want to right, right? right? so yeah. th- that has been a problem of always sort of looking at the past and thinking the past was like that but the past wasn't all that good anyways a lot of these teachers could barely write their name let alone like all of the theories and and uh, all that that they profess to know right and not only that but uh you know maybe the way that one style does it may not be the most efficient way that we have we have uh, we can look 
to other styles and talk to other people and look at YouTube videos and say, hey, that might be a different approach that might be a little bit better. So long as you can explain it to me. Mm -hmm. So I think that this this dialogue that we need to have that needs to be more open, right? Um, more accessible, not only within Chinese martial arts, but with others, right? Uh, and then really just cutting the bullshit. Right? Mm. Uh, let's be real, right? Uh, MMA has given us a, a great laboratory to see what can work and what doesn't, right? mm. how they train, right? How, 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 you know, what kind of uh, training apparatus they use, right? Their training methods. Let's use that as, as a context to help our Kung Fu now, right? So that, that's what I think. We, we, need to, we need to get away from that. That has been a problem, but we don't have to be victim for it. We don't have to continue to be victim to that trend. Right. right? We, need to, we need to update. I agree with you 100%. And I, I dare say, again, I, mean, I might get a lot of flack for this, but I remember you know, an interview on another podcast, someone saying you know, he used to lift weights and he had a, he had a decent physique, you know, and he, he went to China to train with, I believe, a, a Taiji master who, who was legitimately good. You know, when they were doing Taiji against Taiji, the master, you know, owned him. But again, I mean, he's playing his game. I'm not trying to discredit the Taiji master, but you know what I'm trying to say, right? Yeah. Um, and the master, like, you know, squeezed his arm or his, or, you know, his, his, his trap or something. I don't know. And said, oh, too big. Too much muscle. And I, I just, I just... I, I just don't understand that. Like having athletic muscular physique is not a bad thing, you know. Not at all. Lifting weights is not a bad thing. No, right? and but you gotta you gotta train it all, right? So meaning that you want to lift weights, sure, but you should train Tai Chi as well, right? To right. so give you that sense of connection. But to say, like, I, I I personally stay away from teachers that tell me, like, look, your previous training is no good here, or oh, because I lift weights, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Oh, you lift weights, you can't do this. That's not true, right? I, I remember, I, I I don't, again, I don't know how much time we have, but when I was in Vietnam. No, please. It, was, we got all was, the time. I, don't even worry about it. Keep I had going. A little, I had a little issue because, you know, I was coming back and, you know, as a Vietnamese American, uh, I wanted to understand more about Vietnamese martial arts. And I went to a particular school and um, I had learned the style in Southern California. Right. And, you know, they did the same style in Vietnam. So this was like coming home for me. Right. Mm-hmm. And immediately when I came to this teacher's home, he, you know, he said, oh, the way that you're doing the form is wrong. You don't practice application. All you know is form, blah, blah, blah. Right. So, you know, I, I, I played the fool. Right. I'm in somebody's house. And I, I told him, look, I, I, I don't do your style because I learned it in California. Right. So there's <laughs> there's going to be differences. Right. And then, you know, one of the guys that was there, uh, you know, because I pretended to be, you know, stupid American. So he was helping me. He was like, oh, you know, do you know this dish and that dish? And I pretend, oh, I don't know these foods. And he helped me figure out what to eat, right? Uh, Vietnamese people find it as a point of pride if you know how to, if you quote unquote know how to eat something, because some things can be kind of challenging to the palate, right? So the next day, I, I get invited to their practice, and the same guy that was helping me choose the right food to eat was also my practice partner. And uh, you know, he walks me through the basics, and since I don't really know it, you know, I'm a little, I'm a little awkward. Right? And then finally, the uh, the teacher says that you know you're coming from America, and we'd like to see how how you fight because we we don't think what you do in America is legitimate. Right? Big comment to say. Right. 
And I was on a rooftop in Saigon and I made an excuse. I said, you know, I had some diarrhea the day before I wasn't feeling well. Um, and you think that would sort of be a way to excuse myself, right? But it wasn't, they insisted on it. And initially the teacher wanted to fight me, but I, I knew in my mind, if I fight the teacher and he beats me, then it proves his point that, you know, all American Kung Fu, whatever, and I suck, whatever, right? Um, and if I beat him, I don't know if I can get off this rooftop without getting a couple of hits up because I'm, I'm outnumbered, right? Right. So I, I, I just played the dumb and I'm like, look, I'd like to fight somebody who's on my level. And so I picked one of the students. Right? Um, and so and it's the same guy that was telling me what to eat, right? And so what I did was like, look, I, I knew in my mind, here's how I'm going to get off this rooftop like, in one piece. Is I'm going to make an example of this guy because I know that after I fight this guy, there's going to be others in the wings that are going to want to have a piece of me, right? So I got to scare the shit out of everybody. I got to make an example and make him cry uncle. And that's what I did, right? So what I did was that, you know, I put my hand up in a pattern, right? I, I would use the backhand and I, I just put it next to his face and he, you know, put his hand up and he blocked it. He did it like two, three times. And finally, I reversed it and I just slapped him across the face, right? And his hand went to his face. He, 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 he lowered it and he looked up at me and then I just changed my appearance and I basically just went at him like a crazy ass demon right and I pushed him to the edge of the rooftop and I was just you know either slapping him right or I was kicking his legs right because I was just like I I'm going to make an example out of you right and he was still trying to horse dance punch me whatever and I was kind of stood up upright mind you being American you know I'm like a couple of inches bigger than all of these guys. And I just basically hit him across the face. I'm like, that's not going to freaking work on me. Right. And he started crying on this rooftop. No more kicking, no more kicking. So I was like, okay, fine. So we stopped the fight. They bring on a second guy. This guy's a fat guy who uh, was making jokes with me. Hey, I know you're a doctor in America, but maybe you can come back to Vietnam and open up a noodle cart with me. Right? I know he's just, what the heck? he was just joking with me. Right. right. And I, you know, I was quiet and I, I look pensive and I don't really look like somebody who, who knows anything, whatever. But this time, you know, I, I threw, I threw this big ass guy to the floor. Right. Cause I was pissed. Finally in the third round, the teacher comes up to me and says, okay, okay, we don't want to fight anymore. Let's do uh, uh forearm banging. Right. And Cantonese music helped out something. Right. Mm-hmm. Hitting the three stars. Right. And I'm like, I don't even care if my arm breaks off. I'm going to make an example of these guys. I want to take the pain, but I'm going to deliver more pain to the other guy, right? Even if he is on the level of being, you know, my teacher or kung fu brother, or whatever. And I banged the shit out of those arms, right? He finally stopped and he looked at my forearms and they were all swollen, right? And after that, you know, as I was going off the rooftop, one of the older students came up to me and was like, yeah, I saw you fight. And I thought if I could use my triangle horse, you know, maybe I could angle out and hit you. But I wasn't sure. I was like, I'll, and at that point, my my energy was so up. I was like, if you want to go, I'll go with you right now. I don't care if you're 50 years old. I'll beat everybody. Right. And then I went down for a and not one person talked to me. No one asked me about whether my training was legitimate, my kung fu. I ate my pho quietly. I called for a uh, a taxi back to my hotel, and all my friends saw me fuming because I was just up. My forearm was super swollen. When I went back to see my relatives in Hanoi in northern Vietnam, my my grandma's brother gave me some bear uh, bear gall. So it, it's it, it smelled like crap. He said, "Just just." put it on your forearms. It'll help with the swelling. He's like, what the hell did you do in Saigon? Right. 
Um, so, you know, my point in telling you this story is that it was obvious to me that these people had only trained within their style. Mm-hmm. Right. And they only thought they thought they were the best because they were looking from the mountaintop all by themselves, looking at everybody else as mere mortals and not being good enough. Right. Right. But I hope I gave them a little bit of a wake up call. I think I gained their respect. Right. Um, and, you know, we need more friendly opportunities to do that, to open each other's eyes. Right? It doesn't have to be so so confrontational right but we need as kung fu stylists we need to step out of our shell right and we need to interact with the world at large right um, in order to grow so. yeah no i i i love that story actually i could probably have another podcast with you talking about your stories but that was that was fantastic but one thing i wanted to kind of get at a little bit too do you think a little bit of the issue is the fact that the great grandmaster said something so, in my opinion, ignorant, you know, like, like the issue is a bit with some of these grandmasters or masters, would you say, like the leaders yeah. of the lineage, one of the leaders within the lineage or like one of the most legit guys in the lineage is saying something like that. Like, yeah. and I've heard someone else say uh, that I respect his training a lot. His knowledge is incredible. But he says, you know, the Chinese martial arts body is different. It's not the same as like a boxer's body or a, a kickboxer's body or a wrestler's body. It's it's not as muscular as refined. It's, you know, it's a bit softer and it's shaped different because the, the focus is different. I'm like, I don't know if I agree with that. You know what I mean? I, I, I know when I, when I see an MRI of a brain, right? Or like I, I I'll, I look at the look at you know with my colleagues x-rays of other parts of the body i can't tell whether someone is a kung fu guy or a karate guy or mma guy or a guy with this or what i can't tell i can only see the inside right, right. under neuroimaging or or imaging so um you know it's it's true that we can develop certain attributes right but ultimately it is a body right Right. nerves and veins and arteries and muscles and ligaments and tendons right and there are there are so many ways to move and um you know i i i don't really subscribe to that right the you can look at these pictures of kung fu practitioners in the olden days right mm-hmm. they were strong looking people yeah right you know when when you know you look at laval marshall and you know he's out there in mongolia doing poker with, with the mongolians right those guys were fighters, amazing physique, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the weekly, uh, you know, little kung fu guy in his pajamas doing by himself, that's more of a Republican period kind of look, right? But before then, people were training everything, right? Maybe they didn't have, you know, a weight bench, but they were lifting huge rocks, right? Right. Um, you know, Ilya, uh, who, who does praying mantis, he's gone into that, right? Um, we need to see that you know people people were trying to build their bodies in more ways than just one and and mm-hmm. we should update that right no that the, there is no quote unquote kung fu body right it is a body right people want to develop different musculature sure right but ultimately you know under a surgical knife under imaging you're all the same right right <laughs> All the same. Yeah, like even That's some odd. of those Mongolians that with Lavelle, maybe they have huge stomachs, but they have big shoulders as well, and their chest sure. is quite broad. It's not 
necessarily like a traditional gut. Do you get what I'm saying? They're powerful. Yeah, you look at qi, uh, and look at the old, uh, like the old manual, like Qi Guang, Qi Xiao Qi Xu. All those guys are, you know, they're training bare chested with these these bellies hanging out. It wasn't the same physique as maybe the Greek or Roman ideal, right? Polyclitus and his statues of the ideal ratio, not like that, right? But these people were doing functional strength exercises, mm-hmm. right? They weren't just they weren't doing just uh, 108 tai chi form and, and thinking they were going to be warriors. Right? They were training everything, right? You need to have strength training. You need to have cardio, right? Uh, you need to have you know you need to have movement. You need to have flexibility. Right? Those are attributes. Right? Those are that really shouldn't be argued, right? And that's useful for anything that whether it just be walking, right? or uh, exercising, right? Or doing combat sports or doing Kung Fu. You need mm. to have that. So I argue just from the Western medical perspective, and, and most of the time, those people that are saying Kung Fu body, they're not coming from the medical field. They are people who are just parroting some of the language, right? Yeah. A lot of people, a lot of Kung Fu practitioners, they all, honestly, they're, 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 they don't, they're not well-versed enough. So they find one term, right? Recently, it's been fashion. Everybody's been talking about fashion, right. fashion this, of that. But fashion's not new, right? It's just a new thing right now, right? Right. Right. Ten is gonna is gonna once that catches on, that's gonna be another code term. And every time I sort of roll my eyes and I'm like, look, you read one article, you read one one you know book on something, and then all of a sudden it becomes a big deal. But these things have been here all along, right? Um, and you know those attributes. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't really believe in the kung fu body. Right. You got skinny shoulders and a and a belly. Like, okay. Like, <laughs> you're that's not, the you're not, ready, you're not ready to fight then. Right. No. You're out of shape. No. Even if in a static, you know, prearranged situation, you could do some incredible things. You know. It, doesn't mean anything in an actual confrontation sure. obviously sure. you know i've seen people do some amazing self-defense techniques you know in a static situation pre-arranged but i don't get neither of us should get started in that because that's just another can of worms obviously but Fight, fighting is fighting right there you know there's no baji fighting kigua fighting shaolin fighting shimi fighting taizu fighting there's just fighting right we have different approaches. We, you know, we, we should meet with one another. We should compare skills. We should learn from each other. Mm-hmm. Right? That's that's how we grow. But mm-hmm. to say like, you know, hey, you know, why didn't you show any bodging technique or whatever? Because I didn't train it that way, right? That's my fault, right? And right. then look, I, I, I learn a style to learn a skill set, right? But I'm not going to be Li Shu Wan, right? I'm going to mm-hmm. be Viet Le, right? I can't be Huang Fei Hong. I can't be, right? But I can be Viet Le. And that's good enough. Right. Yeah, I mean, we don't have to be Huang Fei Hong though. He he no. that, that era was not a good era. It wasn't No. No. no there's no better you, era to live in than life. right now, you know. So right. right. His life was so depressing. I want a better life than that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And real quick, one last thing. You, you you talked about putting yourself out there. Someone who did that I I respect what he did so much, even if he lost, but he, he did win, which is respectful. The Raven Sword Academy guy, I forgot his name. Um, I hope to speak to him soon. I apologize by not remembering his name. He actually competed in one of those YouTube, like kind of underground MMA type fights. You know what I'm talking about? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And 
he made a. I, I saw the whole fight unedited, but I, I love his version because he was able to break down the techniques with references. That was a beautiful thing, you know. Sure. And even if he had lost, but you know, but still pulled off, you know, s- several successful techniques. That's something, and that's a step in the right direction, right. you know. And again, being willing to put yourself out there, you know, uh, like someone. Some people might say, oh, the guy you fought, look at the guy you fought and might say something about who you fought or that guy's not legitimate. Man, I'm like, he's still doing like 1,000% more than what you would probably do. Would you yeah. be willing to risk getting a concussion? You know, because he knocked the other guy out, right? Right, right, right. Yeah, I you saw know. it. Yeah. Oh, respect, respect. I, I, I respect those that are, are willing to evaluate their practice mm-hmm. and not practice blindly, right? Uh, maybe not everybody wants to be on a YouTube, you know, event or, or be publicized, but those people who are, you know, going out there, trying sparring, trying other arts, right. Uh, bolstering their arts with other skill sets. Like that needs to be, that needs to be looked at with respect. Right? Mm-hmm. We need to value those kind of people in our community and not denigrate them for watering down their Kung Fu with other stuff. Right. And again, anyone who says anything denigrating about it, well, where's your video? Yeah, exactly. Put, put up or shut up. That, yeah. That's the attitude of this day and age. Right? I, I don't want to see another, you know, historical reference. Like, show me if, if, if you know, so-and-so person in history could do that. How come you can't do that? Mm-hmm. You can't do that. Then let's not talk about it. I mean, before the advent of the internet, all we had were magazines and we would read these sure. amazing articles. I would blow our mind. Like, I got to learn this. I got to see this. You know, it, it's different time now you know if you right and i i hate to say this but you know i was so influenced by that time and that's why Me i too. went and learned all these forms right and now i'm sharing it with those people who might even who most people don't care i mean mm. most people don't care about that stuff but for me it's it's kung fu practices it, it has a lot of emotional qualities for me it, it's a way for me to relive those experiences again and that's mm. that's personal I, I don't i don't expect anybody to really understand that other than myself Right. Um, and, and for a lot of people, I think that it, it evokes, you know, happy memories of, of standing in that horse stance, right? Or taking those blows from your teacher. I remember my teacher slapping me around, like, you know, during a praying mantis conference. And I, at the end of it, because we did it to film this little segment, I hugged him. I was like, are we done yet? I don't want to get slapped anymore, right? Mm-hmm. And he was in his 70s at that time. Those those experiences, that's what I what I think of when I do come, right? Um, and I hope that, you know, people practicing out there, it, it makes them into better people. It mm-hmm. creates happy experiences that they can remember. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, the late Shaw Madigan of uh, Dudes of Kung Fu and, he, of, and Big JKD, he, he made a very, really good point. I guess we can kind of leave it here. And you, I would like to hear your comment on this. They asked him, like, why don't you do Muay Thai or why are you doing Wing Chun? Do you do, do this, do that? And he's like, because it makes me happy. Yeah. You know, <laughs> that's a perfect ending. I don't have anything to comment about that. <laughs> yeah. That's perfect. That's perfect. That is a perfect ending. Uh, it makes you happy. It right. makes you happy. It into a better person. Uh, you know, that's enough. That's a, that's enough of a reason to keep on going. Mm-hmm. You know, so for, for all the listeners out there in the podcast, as long as it, it's a constructive, you know, healthy kind of practice that you're engaging, where you're not hurting yourself, you're not. You know, doing too much damage to others. Right? It's mm-hmm. making you, you know, be able to face work and your family, and what have you, right? You should. God forbid a self-defense situation. Sure. Yeah. Sure. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, there is a double-edged sword. Sometimes something can be making you happy and you're learning something totally worthless. So be careful of that. Do your research, obviously. Be open-minded to research and, you know, outside information. But, yeah, if it makes you happy. Well, thank you. VLA, uh, I really appreciate this. It's interesting getting your perspective as a doctor. It's really, it's, it's been incredible. And I, I hope to have you on again. I, I really, I always say this, I really want to have like a round table discussion with various people. I think that'd be really interesting. I, I would love to have. Look forward to that. I look forward to that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, it's been a pleasure and, and thank you again for having me on your podcast. No problem. I'm going to stop recording in a second. Um, sure. Uh, but stay on for me, okay? All right, everyone. Thank you so much. And uh, hopefully you've enjoyed this. And uh, if you have any, you know, if you have any suggestions or anyone you would like me to interview, please let me know. Take care.